This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning. This is the Matt Townsend Show. I'm producer Terry South. Matt Townsend will be here in just a few moments. We uh, welcome you into today's show. It's Friday. Matt usually makes a big deal about making it to Friday. It is a big deal. Why? Oh, man. You got the weekend coming. I mean, that's probably actually the biggest thing. Is that what it is? Just looking forward to not having to come to work? You get to enjoy work. Because you don't have to come in tomorrow. It does kind of... uh, I have worked in different places where you see a better work, a result of work on Friday. Like Thursday is kind of a day where people are kind of struggling, and then Friday everyone's energized because, you know, it's the weekend. And I believe that. I had a boss that tried to fix that. Didn't work. What did he do? He just tried to come in and, and make us all hyper aware that we weren't performing up to standards. Wow. Yeah. That sounds incredibly motivating. <laughs> it wasn't. How it was fun. great. It was great. So, yeah, welcome to Friday. It was like yesterday, except not. It's now Friday. And tomorrow's Saturday. You have big plans? Uh, That's let's always see what people ask. Well, you know, there's there's a BYU baseball game, so I'll be here. Uh, <laughs> I mean, actually, no, not not oh, nothing great. too big, but it's still exciting. My my little boy has a new video game. Oh, apparently he's made my plans for the weekend. Oh wow! He's like, Dad, you're making my video game, and I go, What about your trampoline? I was going to set that up, and he goes, eh. So he's kind of torn. Does he get a trampoline, or do you play a new video game? Tough choice. Tough choices. Oh, well, there's a lot of news going on. Oh, that's right, because it is the end of the week, huh? It is the end of the week. So uh, what, what I have found is by the end of the week, there's just so much stuff happening that I have to start being extra selective, like, oh, let's not talk about that. That'll probably sure. carry on next week, and we'll try to hit some things that are more pertinent for the moment. So we'll get into the news here. The U.S. Treasury Department on Thursday slapped sanctions on several Iranian companies, individuals and officials accused of running an illegal currency exchange scheme to fund a blacklisted elite military unit. The move came just two days after President Trump withdrew from the 2015 uh, nuclear deal and vowed to reimpose sanctions against Iran just one day or just one day after Israel accused the uh, that that blacklisted elite military unit called the Quds Force Q U D S Quds of launching a rocket attack against Israeli targets in the Golan Heights. So yeah, everything's going well. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Sanctions. We have people attacking each other, and uh, yeah, a a Quds Force. I've read that before, but I wasn't exactly sure what that meant. But it probably means something in uh, in uh, in Iran. I'll bet it does. More than, for me, it's a unique way of using the letter Q, <laughs> which there aren't many. So, Special Assistant uh, Kelly Sadler mocked Senator John McCain during a closed-door White House meeting on Thursday, saying it doesn't matter, he's dying anyways. This according to the website The Hill. Ooh. Sadler made the comment about McCain, who was diagnosed with brain cancer last year before a group of about two dozen communication staffers the outlet reported it came out a day after McCain publicly opposed President Donald Trump's pick for CIA director Gina Haspel. The White House didn't deny the remarks, which reportedly caused discomfort in the room as they were made. We respect the senator. We respect Senator McCain's service to our nation, and he and his family are in pr- our prayers during during this difficult time. The White House said in a statement, 
Uh, McCain's wife, Cindy, later responded to t- on Twitter saying, May I remind you, my husband has a family, seven children, and five grandchildren. Don't make him part of the fodder of politics Ooh. as they're going through this tough time. Also, a, a guest on Fox Business yesterday said that because John McCain was captured, tortured, and then gave up all the secrets he knew, that proves that torture works and we should use that more. Oh, my goodness. And he has oh. been uh, basically disavowed now by Fox News. Fox News said he will not be a contributor anymore on their network. So that that's how that uh, was dealt with yesterday. McCain had a tough day, and the man's in Arizona, not even really in D.C. So he's having a, a, a difficult time there as everyone seems to be – not everyone, but people seem to be uh, using his condition for their own purposes. I like his wife's response. Like, I'm sorry that that had to be said, yeah. but, I mean – She's like, remember, we have a family here. We're trying right. to deal with some issues. We don't need to hear you trying to justify issues And there's like that political debate, and then there's just calling out, oh, you know, he's dying. Like, that's just... It's ugh. just mean, yeah. Tactless. The Department of Homeland Security Secretary Kristen Nielsen drafted a resignation letter and informed colleagues she was close to quitting after President Donald Trump publicly admonished her during a cabinet meeting, insisting she failed to secure the U.S. border. According to the New York Times, Trump's sharp rebuke was part of a lengthy tirade over what he said were cabinet's inadequate efforts to prevent undocumented immigrants from illegally crossing the border. The report says this has all been denied, of course. Hi, guys. How you doing, Matt? Morning, Matt. Good. little bailing wire issue. Hey, um... Is that how it works? If I throw a tire, if I throw a tirade, will you guys like shape up? I don't know. I don't think so. Um, the, uh, I saw a list this morning of like what was it like seven cabinet secretaries who have let it be leaked publicly that they had they thought mean, about quitting. That yeah. they've drafted letters to resign. It, it just you seems know. like there's management problems he here. Dressed down. The first rule of management I learned yeah. when I took a management class to be a part-time manager, mm-hmm. they take you in because the company was smart and realized that most people have no very limited skill. Yeah. Right. So they give you these classes. They pull out a binder, and here's the whole like, rundown of how their experience over 100-some-odd years right. in management, here's the best way to do it. First rule, do not take an employee aside and dress them down. No, don't take them. Well, don't dress them down in front of all yeah. their colleagues. Yeah, yeah, you can't. No, take them aside yeah. and deal with the issue. When you stand up in a cabinet meeting, and just rip someone apart. Right. Their first inclination is, I don't need to deal with this. Oh, I'm going to quit, and you don't want that. And doesn't it say that she kind of defended the fact that this is a complex issue with a lot of hands in the deal and. You're not maybe understanding the whole thing. So the story came out in the New York Times. The Homeland Security put on their Twitter account eventually that they denied this yeah. even happened or that she wrote a letter. or all that. And then she, I don't know if she's actually said anything about it, but uh, it's all its all trying to be walked back. Yeah. Cooler heads are prevailing, apparently. Apparently. At least from everyone else except for the person probably dressing someone down. He probably doesn't <laughs> feel there's a problem. What's he feels it's deal? motivation. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Is that a proper motivation tactic? Does well, it work I mean, for some no, people? Yeah, well, yeah, fear. Sure. It's fear. It's a- just the problem with fear is they turn on you. Just ask, I don't know, Michael Cohen. Yeah. If he's afraid right now, he may turn on you, President. <laughs> we'll Be see careful what who you yell at.
A uh, Finally, a semi-truck trailer hauling $800,000 worth of dimes crashed on Tuesday into a guardrail Ooh. on an interstate near Las Vegas, spilling thousands of coins on the side of the road. <laughs> State troopers established a crime scene so the recovery team could collect the money. The Nevada Highway Patrol says the truck was headed south on I-15, about 50 miles from Las Vegas, when it hit a guardrail in the early mornings. The uh, truck was hauling a money under a contract with the U.S. Treasury Department when it dumped the load and several bags split oh, open. Now, the sad thing about it is, is a dime something that you would actually stop to pick up? I mean, if you had like yeah. thousands of them, maybe. But how many times have you walked by a penny and you're like, I'm not even going to bend over for that one? Right. Well, now I'm too old for that. Now I have a kid, and he's like money, and he just grabs yeah. it. Yeah, so that's all they got to do is send a bunch yeah. of kids out. There. Bunch of kids will Hoover it all up. You're well, and dimes are hard to pick up. Yeah, they're so small. Yeah. Like that's just a thing. I think that just it's just going to be sitting the out there on the freeway. Just leave the eight hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> There'll be some scout troop out there just cashing in. That is just piles of dimes and uh, significant uh, damage. So some guardrail got in the way. Or the yeah. Well, I don't think the guardrail did much. I think the truck guy may have the truck guy the the driver may have may fallen asleep early morning. Well, yeah. Low light. That must have been turn. a really heavy truck. Well, and that's a uh, long yeah. That's a long kind of road. That's a long stretch between Vegas and is it they were going north right? So it's a lot of just empty road. Yeah. So There's just, a lot so, of dirt and sagebrush. Yeah, it's easy to fall asleep. You can actually fall asleep for hours and it's not a problem. As long as your car stays straight. Right. Yeah, I do it all but, the time. But, uh, when you get an autonomous vehicle. Oh, someday. Just kick back, take a nap. I pray for them every day. <laughs> Please. Please give me an autonomous Bring vehicle. Bring me the technology. That avoids things in the road. Hey, uh, today we're going to be talking about technology mm. and the Appalachian Way. Yes. Did you know that apparently uh, people from the uh, Appalachian Mountain region, West Virginia mm-hmm. maybe, um, they don't adopt technology very quickly, and we all need to maybe learn some of their lessons. And maybe their approach is something we can mm-hmm. garner some Maybe we could start to say, hey, slow down. Resist a bit. Appalachian versus Apple Nation. <gasps> Write it down. Write it down. There's the tease. Appalachian versus Apple Nation. Again, Becca did it again. That's, the, that's just the talent we've got in this room. That's why they pay me the big bucks right there. Thanks. Thanks, Matt. Hold on. Are they paying you big bucks now? Yeah. It's awesome. (laughs) I was wondering where that money went. All those dimes. I can pick up as many as I want from the parking lot. (laughs) Go get as many as you want, Becca. Becca's killing it. Um, Okay, good stuff. Up next, we'll be talking about resisting technology the Appalachian way. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Okay, when you hear the word Appalachia, what comes to your mind, right? Uh, many stereotypes might pop up. Uh, some jokes might come to mind. You know, words like hillbilly, uh, toothless. We have a uh, one of our producers that works with us, Lauren Simpson, who's from West Virginia. We asked her, what, what do people say? And she says, it's not good. It's not good. Uh, the land of toothless is one of the... Uh, stereotypes that she heard heard a lot. And so as we as we talk about Appalachia, 
We might think that they're a little backwards. We might think that you know they don't have the technology. They're not even using current or the uh, or the more or the newer iPhones or whatever. But the reality is, they may actually be onto something. They may be teaching us something, whether intentionally or not, about how we all should feel about technology and to be a little more careful around it. Uh, here to talk with us about this idea is um, Sherry Hamby. She's a research professor of psychology and the director of the Life Paths Research Program at the University of the South. Dr. Hamby is also the founding editor of the American Psychological Association Journal of Psychology of violence. And uh, we're honored to have you, Sherry. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. So talk to us about this. You focused some of your research on um, Appalachian residents. How, how did it come to be that you, you focused on Appalachia? And what can we all learn about technology and uh, from lessons from the Appalachian residents? Uh, well, like Lauren, I have uh, roots in Appalachia. I have many uh, ancestors from this region, and I've been back in this part of the country myself for about 10 years, and so that's how I decided hmm. to focus on it. But uh, but even with those roots, I was definitely surprised by some of what we found in this study uh, in terms of the, especially the kind of elements of you. I've heard all those stereotypes about Appalachia, and everybody tends to see it through this real deficit-based lens. Right. But I found a lot of stories of strength and resilience and people making very intentional choices that, uh, you know, especially in the light of some of these scandals we've been facing with. A- oh, we're losing you there, Sherry. Are you there? We... Uh... We're not able to hear you. We're going we're gonna to take you offline and go see if we – we'll call you back and see if we can connect uh, with a better line. Speaking of technology, yeah, one of the ideas that a lot of people feel is that because, you know, they may not have the money there, the resources there, nobody can or does invest in technology. But um, one of the things that we are also figuring out is that it's probably not – uh, always about the ability to pay for it. Sometimes it's just the smarts to know that, hey, I don't need to give my money to big government or to big companies that are going to end my time and my data and my information and access. Um, it's uh, it's just a smaller way or it's a it's a smarter way, I think, to make sure that um, that we can that we can live through this technology burst that we're going through. Again, we are speaking with Sherry Hamby, who is teaching us the lessons she learned from the Appalachian uh, uh, people from Appalachia area. And uh, Sherry, are you back with us? Yes, I am. Sorry about that. Oh, you're fine. You're fine. So it really, I mean, you found that as you were researching it, I mean, it's not just a financial issue for the people uh, that, uh, that you were studying. They really have... Uh, kind of um, some some basic good old-fashioned values as well that were driving them to be a little bit more hesitant to just quickly adopt technology. Right. There's definitely a strong threads in the interviews that we did with people about self-reliance and just wanting to not become dependent on a machine or a piece of technology and and also about, I mean, many people have, have talked about the ways that technology can be sort of disconnecting or depersonalizing and 
I think that's not necessarily unique to Appalachia, but in a place like this where there's so much value on community, it was just this really strong thread that was strong enough here that a lot of people were choosing, you know, not to have a smartphone or not to engage in technology. And uh, you do see, of course, the whole range, but then there was just a lot of respect. I think one of the things that struck me the most about the interviews is that even though there are, of course, a lot of people here who are high technology users, just like anywhere, that that a lot of them were also expressing deep respect for their neighbors who had chosen to hmm. not engage in technology in the same way that, that they had. How How did they choose? I mean, it seems like in this world where we're almost forced in a way to deal with and, and to, you know, adopt technology because every way, everything's going that way. How did you see that they intentionally avoid it or don't use it? Well, some of them, I mean, some of them, you know, I guess maybe what you might call titrate their use of technology. So a fair number of people here, at least compared to the general population, still prefer to use, uh, you know, flip phones or, or older styles of phones that don't have smartphone technology. And so that they're not doing that. So they do have a, a cell phone, but they're <clears throat> not going with with that type or a lot of them, you know, are just using many fewer forms of technology, so they're not on Facebook or they don't use email. Uh, you know, again, you do see a, a full range of it, but here I think what really captures this community is this concept of, of, of choice and, and variability. And so in most of the rest of the country, the uses of these devices is up around 90% or more of the population. And, and down here, you still see a lot of it, but it's more, as many as like, you know, one out of four people are not using the technology at all. Mm. And then there's another group of almost as big that are using it in much smaller doses than what you see in the rest of the country. Do you notice, is there a difference with the teenagers? Are they, are they, do they have the same numbers? Are they not adopting at the same rate as the, as their parents or are they just still avid adopters? Well, like in the rest of the country, Teens are more likely to use a lot of these forms of technology than adults. But we did do focus groups and interviews with the teenagers. And and even with them, you know, one of the other key values that's so important in Appalachia is humility. And even a lot of them made some very strong statements about how they just didn't like this sort of selfie culture Mm. and this kind of constant documentation of their lives. And several of them are like, you know, I see these kids all day long in school. I don't need to get home and see, you know, like three more selfies in the course of, you know, the afternoon. And uh, so even there, we saw quite a lot of resistance, which I thought was a real sign that some of the traditional cultural values are being preserved across generations. Hmm. That is is fascinating. In, in doing this research, um, is I mean, and what's amazing I think about it is it's such it's kind of a nice data set for all of us to be able to go look at uh, kind of old school values, and I wonder if it if there's a collision that you see between companies, jobs that demand that you have technology, getting jobs and employment that are much more kind of technology based. Um, is is it hindering? Do you sense their ability to progress? Well, a lot of people, I, you know, this, I mean, this certainly is an area that is 
uh, low income in general. I mean, again, you know, I think what you see is a, a lot of variability. I mean, there's certainly people here who have tech jobs, uh, but I, uh, you know, it's certainly it's a challenge out here in these more rural areas to really figure out a way to have a good job and a good career, and the, the career choices can be limited. Uh, so I, I don't know. I mean, that's certainly a possibility. Mm. I think that a lot of them did mention that they would only use technology related to work and that it hadn't kind of crept into this 24-7 existence. I mean, I'm as guilty of that as oh, anybody. Yeah. I, I check my email in the evening and on the weekends, and yeah. uh, a lot of them seem to still have stronger boundaries around some of that, which, frankly, I, I found myself envying a little bit. Oh, absolutely. We're speaking with Sherry Hamby. Um, she's a professor, a research professor of psychology and the director of Life Paths Research Program at the University of the South. And she's teaching us um, about uh, resisting technology appellation style. Talk to us about what what are the takeaways that that you see the rest of us could benefit from? What, how could we, uh, you know, living, even, even be a little bit more tech-centered, maybe a little bit of an adopter of technology, but still bring in a little bit of the Appalachian style? Well, I think that all of us, I mean, even myself, when I went into this study, I think I was going in with this sort of typical mainstream idea that, like, more technology is always better and and since doing this study, I have, I mean, I'm a Thai technology user, and I have found myself thinking more about, you know, is this really going to be an advantage? Is this going to also create a burden? So just asking myself that. I have been trying to set better limits around my technology use. And uh, really, I, you know, it's, it's been kind of a wake-up call for me to, you know, not maybe always be answering emails on the weekends and that that can wait till Monday morning. Uh, and certainly uh, a lot of people here, just like anywhere, we're learning how to navigate that with the skills to set your privacy settings on Facebook. I, I went into Facebook and found all the programs, you know, going into the settings that had shared my information. And I was just horrified by that. There were like 34 different programs. And so this was kind of a wake up call to me to go back and sort of do an inventory of what I'm using and who has access to my information. And I think that's a lesson that anybody could take away from this. Oh, no, absolutely. You, you also brought up in, uh, in your article the fact that uh, they're using humor to express their concerns. Um, how, how do you see that they approach their, their worries, their concerns with technology by, by using their sense of humor? Sure. I mean, that is something that is just such an important value around here and not just any kind of humor. So a lot of humor about Appalachia, as you said at the introduction, is really pretty aggressive humor that is very condescending and even demeaning. But in Appalachia, the type of humor that is that is most highly valued is self-deprecating humor and really being able to poke fun at themselves. And and I think that we have found in our research that that you know psychologists can be such a serious group that they don't study humor very much. And mm-hmm. we have found that that's just been an incredibly useful coping skill not only for dealing with technology or any kind of technology-based uh, victimization like scams or what have you, but for, for all other types of things too. And 
they're just great. I mean, one woman was like, I don't want anything as smarter than I am. And, you know, <laughs> obviously she didn't really think their phone is like smarter than her. But by using that kind of joking around, you know, she was able to create some distance between her and the pressures to adopt that technology. And I think anybody could really benefit from from taking a more humorous view of some of these things that were being pushed on by these corporate forces. I agree. They, and also just they fight back. Um, it seems like they have kind of the willingness, the spirit to fight back. You tell a story of a person that um, that posed as an FBI agent to kind of yeah. go back and get a scammer. Yeah, that was another one that like really surprised me <laughs> because uh, I'm sure everybody who is listening today has had somebody try to scam them or promise them, you know, some that they've inherited some ridiculous amount of money and all you have to do is like click here and give us your bank account information and uh, you know, and so this uh, man had experienced a scam like that and he used some kind of technology to reverse ping like where this computer was and it poses an uh, FBI agent and tell them that, uh, you know, I know where you are and you gave the location and I'm coming after you and like really freaked this guy out. And, uh, and of course I'm sitting there thinking (laughs) in that, well, you know, that's not actually technically legal to post as an FBI agent. And, but the, but the other people, I mean, I think you can see culture when you hear those kinds of extreme examples, because, Nobody else in the room said, well, that might be a risky thing to do, or are you sure that's safe, or I'm not sure that's legal. They were all like, they just were all like really impressed with that, and they were all asking how he did that. And Now, uh, now we've got know, a bunch so, of faux FBI agents out there yeah, fighting I, the battle. I, I, yeah, I hope not, but I think it does show that, that thread of self-reliance and and certainly, you know, I just saw an article about it in the um, news the other day that that there's a real problem and there's kind of a gap in the criminal justice system is that if you don't get taken by one of these scammers, then it's hard for you to know what to do. I mean, there's places to go if you've actually had your money stolen by them, but you know, what can we do to push back against this, you know, this on, you know, onslaught of fraudulent attempts that are mm. being made on all of us every day. And, uh, you know, and I think that it's a typically Appalachian thing to do that, well, if the system hasn't come up with a way to address that, then we're going to think of one on our own. And I wouldn't really endorse uh, posing as an FBI agent, but I, I do appreciate the, the threat of sticking up for yourself that's embodied in that. Yeah. Well, another thing, just as we wrap up, that I, I was really impressed about with your research is this idea that um, I mean, because, again, we, we think that people are just ignorant to technology, so they're not adopting it because they're not smart enough, they don't get it. They But you bring up a great point that resistance is not ignorance, and we need to be careful of not being biased or prejudiced about our seniors that are resisting maybe adopting technology too quickly or certain groups of people that, that have other reasons, maybe other – other, you know, deeper choices or motives for why they don't want to adopt technology. Absolutely. I think that's the most important take-home message is uh, it's just to respect the, the choices that people are making and to, you know, to look behind them and not just assume that there's something ignorant or or low income is the reason for these choices because I found that's 
a lot of them were really based on these very intentional decisions to resist those pressures. Mm, Great insights. Uh, Sherry, thank you so much for your time and your work. Um, we've coined the phrase now from, uh, you know, go go from Apple Nation to Appalachian. Uh, the rule is take the Appalachian style to handle your Apple Nation. And uh, we appreciate your insight, Sherry. That's uh, great research. Again, Sherry Hamby is a research professor of psychology uh, at the University of the South and is also the founding editor of the American Psychological Association Journal of Psychology of Violence, which has a top 10 ranking in family studies and criminology Um, based on impact factor. Powerful stuff. We appreciate Sherry's insight as well. And man, let's not, we don't have to judge the non-tech users. And it doesn't make you smarter and better because you use technology. Doesn't it really matter how you use it? And if you're actually, I mean, if you're just using it to be more addicted and numb, it's not helping much, uh, any of us. So we will continue the journey more straight ahead. Up next, we'll do a little Coach's Corner. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. What's the matter with you, boy? You too stupid to do what your coach tells you? Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball. Play ball. Welcome back, folks. You know, we hear and we talk a lot about on this show and other places the importance of resiliency with our kids. We somehow have to help them be resilient. And I've, as I've taught that and learned more about it, studied it, and talked to people on the show, we, I'm not sure we've created a great metaphor for that yet. Like, I'm not sure that we... We, we see exactly what, why and what it means to be resilient. I mean, we know that they need to be able to have grit. That's another word we hear out there a lot. They've got to be strong and tough. But I, I've, I've found, I think, a metaphor that may work as a parent to help all of us look at it a little bit differently. So if, if I told you that you were going to raise your child and eventually that child would have to go on their own journey, right? Eventually you're going to have this rite of passage. It might be a graduation from high school. Uh, it might be a graduation from the university, wherever this rite of passage takes place. You send them on their way, and you will no longer be able to influence your child's journey directly. You'll, you'll be able to be a, a, you know, a participant at times in their journey. You'll be able to talk to them, maybe to guide them a little bit, but pretty much they're going to go on their own excursion. And if they're going to leave on their own excursion, you would want to make sure that you get them prepared, right? You're going to uh, equip them and get them ready and tooled to be able to handle the journey. But if you have to send them on the journey, what would you want to have, um, what would you want them to know? And what would they need to know to make it on the journey? Or would they just need to make sure that they have certain things, right? Like a tent or a knife. Make sure you've got a knife. You need something to start fire to keep you warm. But aren't there a lot of other things on the path, on the road, on the journey that could come into play? And so one of the things I've I've found is there's five different areas that we want to make sure that our children are independent when they go on the journey. To me, these five areas are the areas where we create uh, resiliency because these are five different areas that need to actually feed upon each other along this path and their journey. 
I mean, think about it. If your if your child were to cross a river and lose everything that they've got, what would they do? And would they be able to handle that trial along the journey road? So here's here are the five areas we want to work on when it comes to creating resiliency. First and foremost, we want to create uh, physical strength and independence. We want them we want them to be physically strong, meaning that they know how to actually run their own physical body. They understand their body. They're healthy. They have hygiene habits. They have a healthy diet. They know what a healthy diet is. They exercise. They they have found the exercising uh, skills and abilities that they need to make it through their life. As part of the physical pre- preparation for our kids, they need to be financially independent, right? They need to actually be able to exist physically, to pay their bills, to make ends meet financially. So they probably ought to learn a little bit about finance. Uh, they also ought to have some career guidance and 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 have somewhere that they can just physically go contribute to the world. Now, to me, that is generally where a lot of us spend most of our time parenting. It's kind of the equipping of our child to be able to deal with the physical world, right? It's a great key, and it's it's an important place where our children need to be independent. But there is a level a little deeper and that is what I would call socially independent. Our kids need to be socially independent. They need along the road in their journey, they need to know how to handle the people they come across. They need to know how to take the place of another person and actually feel what others are feeling. It's called empathy, right? They need to be able to connect with people on the journey and not be taken advantage of on this, on this journey. They need to know how to get support and help along the way. They need to have a guide. They need to have a buddy. They need to know how to choose a guide. They need to know how to choose a partner. So the social independent side is about partners and passion, having more people around you that can share their excitement, their energy, and maybe sometimes carry you when you don't have the energy to do it yourself. The third area that we could use as we go on this journey and trying to create resilient kids is the intellectual area. To me, they've got to be intellectually independent, meaning when they get out into the world and their skills aren't working anymore because they're now confronting another challenge along that journey that they didn't know was going to be there, do they have the ability to go independently learn? Do they have the skills to actually acquire information? Do they know how to get the technical know-how to make stuff happen? Do they have uh, the helps that they need, the watchouts? Have they learned from the people that they've socially connected with what they've learned along their path in the journey, right? So the intellectual independence is what creates more practices for us and helps us create more possibilities for how we can handle the journey. The intellectual side of it would be staying curious. We've got to stay curious instead of thinking we know what's going on and we need to teach our kids to stay curious. And we've got to, instead of giving our kids answers all day long, we have to teach them how to find answers. One of the best ways to do that is to say, I don't know. I don't know what that's about. Go go look it up and come back and tell me what you learned. Or ask them, what do they think? A lot of times you'll notice your kids are asking you the questions. Turn it back on them. Identify how they're growing. Ask them every day, what have you learned today? Have them solve your problems with you. Turn over difficult conflicts or difficult situations that you need to deal with as a parent. Turn it over to them. When you have 
your toilet break down, don't just go fix it. Bring them along and ask them to help you or task them to go fix it. And if they don't know how, ask them to figure it out. Wouldn't that be wild, right? So are your children physically independent? Are they socially independent? And are they intellectually independent? Because if they are, then they're going to have the practices, the possibilities, the partners, the passion, the progress, and the protection to make it on their journey. Next hour, we'll be talking more about the other things we've got to have if we want to have resilient children and help them on this journey, because you're not going to be doing the journey with them forever. And if they're not resilient enough to make this uh, life trek, then guess what? They may be in trouble, and then they'll have to live with you forever. That's, uh, that's a promise. We'll continue the journey more straight ahead, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Have you ever witnessed or been part of a rip-roaring argument, you know, where emotions are high on both sides and everyone's, you know, simultaneously arguing for their point? No one's listening to each other. Have you ever tried to step in in the middle of one of those situations? Well, it's not an easy task, but it is the life of uh, Diane Musho Hamilton. And uh, she is a professional mediator, a teacher of Zen. She's also the author of Everything is Workable, a Zen Approach to Conflict Resolution. And she joined us not long ago to share her experience with us. I began the interview by asking, how did uh, mediation and the Zen approach come together for you? Well, I, I've always been interested in, in helping people get along because I've always needed a little help getting along myself. I'm a little bit hot-tempered and kind of fiery, so... It was kind of important to me growing up to sort of figure out, you know, what could I do to actually listen and make contact with people in a real way. And then I learned how to meditate when I was in my early 20s, and I realized that meditation and mediation are very similar. Meditation, when you sit down and quiet your mind, you're really kind of coming into wholeness with your experience, becoming one, if you will. And whenever we're mediating, we're bringing two divergent points of view into one. So it's the same kind of you know, the same impulse to kind of create this uh, continuity and a sense of peace in your life. Do you see, um, We it seems like as a culture, as a country, we've become very polarized, you know, in a lot of the things we see um, on television with our politics and um, just, I think, I think lifestyles, everything seems to be so polarized. But yeah. really... The, the the need of this country and of all, I think, humans is to be able to take two disparate ideas and find a way to bring them together. Yeah, precisely. If you look at – there's nothing wrong with polarity. Wherever there's two, there's tension, and that tension can be creative or that tension can be you know, destructive or aggressive. Uh, polarity becomes a problem when you try to get rid of one end of the spectrum. Hmm. If you work with the the – opposition, but you find a way to creatively weave, then, you know, we can get somewhere creative, which is more durable in the in the long run. And you do hear people in political positions saying we need to be able to reach across the aisle. And I think that's really true. It's only when we take a position that the other side is absolutely wrong and can never be right, that we, we try to exile their perspective completely out of the room. It just doesn't work. Well, and it seems to make it worse, right? Because if you're going to just try to hush my voice, 
yeah. or or cr- crush my idea, I'm going to just use that energy to get you. Absolutely. And mm. we, we see that over and over in conflicts that just simply won't go away. You know, they just people the it escalates, it gets worse, but it doesn't it never resolves until people actually make a decision to try to work it through. And and then it, what's so interesting is uh, and we've even seen it in in a variety of different issues, but Forever, forever, people were pushing against, uh, you know, kind of the LGBT movement and pushing and pushing and and basically trying to just eradicate the idea, just eliminate the idea. Mm -hmm. Tension grows, tension grows. And then um, and this is what I saw in in marriage mediation and divorce is eventually the courts can then rule and the courts rule and create a, a law, I guess, or make it legitimate and then all of a sudden, the other side is just supposed to now feel good about it and accept it, but they've been fighting against it. So then that just creates tension, even though we've had an agreement that's legally imposed or, or placed. Yeah, yeah. It gets it gets tricky in terms of social policy and what's what's legal and what isn't legal. Right. One one way to think about it is that in our one you know one of the great things about the the West and particularly the United States is that er, that we put a huge emphasis on individual rights. So we really want everybody to have their truth and their opinion and their perspective. But the problem is is we don't teach people how to work with the fact that everybody has an opinion and a perspective. Right. So we grant the right, but we don't give anyone the skills to work with that. It, you know, we're not a, run by a dictator. We're not a, just a completely ideological homogenized society. So therefore, if everybody's going to have an opinion, we all need to actually learn how to work with the fact that everybody has an opinion. Mm-hmm. And I see it like in the marriage mediation, um, you know, at some point, why mediation would work better than, I guess, litigation is because we, we both have a chance now to do this together uh-huh. so that we can both buy into the outcome. That's right. And usually what happens when you sit down with two people, particularly people in a marriage or who know each other, who've been in business before, you find out that people have way more in common than they do right. uh, not in common. And so you really, you know, in a mediation process, we try to get people's genuine wants and needs out on the table. We find that, you know, nine out of ten, they basically agree to. And then what, you know, what kind of creative ideas can we get? over this one stumbling block, but you have to really build this sense that there's way more, just just like in culture in the United States, we have way more in common than we do different oh, yeah. in terms of political party. But then we yeah. spend all of our energy on the part the we difference. don't agree on, right? Absolutely. And then even in our disagreement, and we share our disagreements, like if I could honestly understand something I disagree with, mm-hmm. even in that disagreement, I'll find out even 80% of that I agree with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it just becomes more and more finite, doesn't it? Finite when I... You you really talk with people. People basically want health and well-being, and people want everyone fundamentally to be well off. I mean, it's it's a very small group of people that are hate mongers. There are a few. They're out there. They want people to be destroyed. There's a destructive impulse. But the vast majority of people really would kind of prefer if everybody had what they needed and everybody got along. Mm. Why is it, do you sense, that we... Um, that polarity brings the tension. Why is it that we as humans are more inherently prone to have conflict and tension in disagreement instead of just inherent peace? Well, I think that, you know, in, in, in our world and in, in our relationships and in reality itself, we have all of that which is the same, and we have the difference. And the sameness is what creates continuity, it's peace, it's togetherness, it's coherence. 
the difference is exciting. It's what creates change. It's what moves culture. It's what generates excitement. If you and I started to have a fight right now, everybody would perk up. Oh, yeah, they'd listen. Yeah, so differences, differences have their role. The problem is, is that we don't generally know how to work with them. We don't know how to capture the excitement and the stimulation and really tolerate it in order to kind of get to the next place of sameness that integrates that difference. I always say that the, that the harmony that comes from integrating difference is greater than the harmony that doesn't include difference. Mm. Yeah, it's true. It's a lower, it's kind of a, yeah, it's like compromise or it's like, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's imposed conformity uh-huh. kind of. Yeah. yeah. It's, when I think about it, um, there's, there's principles, and I know, I'm sure, you've pulled out of your Zen practices um, a lot of principles that will help us in this process. Mm-hmm. Give, us, give us one of them, and then we'll take a break, and then I want you to teach us, what are some of the, what are some of the tools, the principles, the rules mm-hmm. of Zen that might help us manage mm-hmm. the conflict better? Okay, great. Um, I, would, I would say the first rule is, is we have to ask ourselves, do we be- genuinely believe that there, there's more than one way to see something? Do we genuinely believe that there's more than one perspective and that those perspectives may not be totally true, but there could be a grain of truth in it? Mm. We have to challenge ourselves to really ask that. Some people will say no. So that's, that's the first thing. You've got to ask yourself, do you think someone else legitimately could have a different point of view from you? Yeah. That's because they could have a different point of view from you, and they it could even if it's obviously unhealthy or inappropriate, it could still be truth for them. Yeah, that's right, and and it may, as I said, it may not be totally true, or it may be a lesser truth. But how we have to be able to accord somebody, even when I was trained in, uh, as an undergraduate, we would talk about working with psychotic people and finding a way, even with someone who's, who's living in kind of a reality of their own, what, how could we find a way to legitimize their experience, hmm. even if it isn't agreed upon by anybody else, because they're, they're suffering that point of view. So if you can't find some truth in it, you cannot possibly mediate. That was Diane Hamilton, and uh, she is the author of the book, Everything is Workable, A Zen Approach to Conflict Resolution. And isn't it powerful? You, you really can. You, can. you can use basic uh, principles taught by Buddha, by Christ, to help us mediate and get through some of the uh, most difficult things in life. If you're willing to just breathe, calm down and slow it down a bit. Well, we will continue the journey doing what we can on this show to help you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Happy Friday to you. Dr. Matt here, along with Terry and Becca. The gang is gathered. And by the way, uh, here's the news. We've been teasing you with the fact that there's going to be some news on the show. But we haven't teased it much. I've kind of been really quiet about it. But we're making some changes to the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Broadcasting. So I have been doing my uh, show here for five and a half years. I think almost six years. I got an email. Yeah. Six-year anniversary was Monday. Is that what that was? That's right. May something. Yeah. How come you got that email and I didn't get that? I don't know. But they're like, hey, celebrate it. And I go, "Eh, Matt's giving a speech. He's not here today. 
Yeah, that's probably why yeah. we didn't celebrate it. And so six years here at BYU Broadcasting, five and a half years I was doing it before at KSL. So that's a lot of time, 11 and mm. a half years of talking. And then the show has progressed from when I started, it was a one-hour show, and then it moved into a three-hour show, and then it moved from the afternoon to the mornings. And it's I'm tired, quite honestly. But uh, what we're doing now is we're going to revamp the show and start um, – uh, we're going to take a little sabbatical. Uh, we're not saying exactly how long because we're not actually sure, but probably a month or less. Then come back locked and loaded, mm. and we'll be doing a one-hour show every day that will be very focused on relationships and how to live longer. So life, love, and leadership. Very focused on those three areas. And Marvel movies. And and we will be Marvel movie-free. Oh, so do not despair, but we will be playing um, best ofs for that month, it looks like. And then we will unleash the Kraken and, and be sharing with you the new show. And that will be in about a month. Hmm. And it's all good. Everyone's like worried, like, what's wrong? It's I, I have – just so you know, I have a whole other business outside of this business. So I work 14-hour days. And then if you remember last year, I blew my gallbladder out. I just blew. Is that how that worked? Blew right out my side. Okay. It just popped. All of a sudden, it just popped out on the floor. I was mm. wondering about that stain on the wall. Did you see gross. that? It yeah. It ricocheted off the wall onto the floor. And so what I wanted to do was just, I just need to take a break, a little bit of break, because we have to get here early. We have to do work all day, and then I've got to go do work all day, and then I've got to do work at night. Mm. Anyway, so all of that fun. But uh, just know we're not going far, and all you can still go to iTunes to tune in. You can download all of our past episodes. We will be playing best ofs. Mm, they're uh, great, and they're best. Of. I've listened to a few. The staff is listening to the rest of them. Yeah, aren't they great? Yeah, they're all like, "Wow, this is like what we do." We they go, "We make this stuff." Well, the funny thing about it is, it's Constantly? the first time the team yeah. has listened to the show. Well, there's that. So take that. Well, they listen to the segments they produce. That's what they say. Yeah. And then they the, don't. Then I go, did you hear that other interview? And they're like, wow. Yeah. I don't think they even listen to the segments they produce. It's okay. One in ten. So um, anyway, it's going to be great. Life is good. And uh, I'll just be off for about a month, and then we'll come back with an all-new show. One hour a day. It'll be great. And, and meanwhile, if you have any questions, just contact Terry dot south at byu.edu. Why did you just do that? Just contact terry.south at byu.edu. Or you can reach him at his cell. Or reach him at his cell phone at... (laughs) Slow it down. Or just find us on Twitter at Mm. Dr. Matt Show. But we're not going anywhere. In fact, I have a feeling we'll come back with even more vim and vigor. Right. Just in time for Ant-Man, so we can talk about that Marvel movie. It's going to be awesome. The next 20... That's something that for the next, you know, month I won't miss much of. I just bring those up because you have such a visceral reaction. Yeah. It's just I, I shouldn't have a visceral reaction no, but to it. I just wish we I have this my wife and I were discussing relationships. Yeah. And she, I told you in the break that she told me I was basically trapped. Yeah. Yeah, you you were you were trapped. She was trapped. No, no, no. She says you're 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 not going anywhere is what she said. That was her exact oh, word. Yeah. Um, 
but it's it's more of I have this personality trait that if I know it annoys you, I might just sort of poke at it a Keep little bit it. just to yeah. see. Because if you react, it's the reaction I, I enjoy. And I like seeing – because it's the, one of the only things you actually get excited about are well, Marvel yeah. comics things. And the True. royal family. Oh, and the royal family. Oh, That's yes. right. Can't wait for the wedding. I know. It's going to be great. And the shoes and the apparel. And the, the hats. And the, the hats are fabulous. Yeah, you're way into the hats. <laughs> so that I like it because it's fun that way. It's it's in a way sad that I'm taking a month off because Becca just got here. Mm. And Becca has brought a whole new life to the show. It's what I've been told. It's the it's the jujitsu clown in her. That's right. It's just uh, the feeling of adrenaline, you know, as yeah. the ratings plummet, you know. Yeah, it's... totally. It's the, t- and, and it's the free fall. I'm going to miss having a Struggle clown to name. survive. We call her Teaspoon. Teaspoon. Is that your clown name? That is, yeah. You yeah. got it. We call her Teaspoon. We call you uh, Honorary Birds. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Great show. That's right. Mad Birds. Mad TikTok bird. <laughs> anyway, so just know, it's all good. Uh, nobody's dying and nobody's sick. It's just a it's Just, a just taking a break. Just taking a sabbatical. Who's that? I'll Better just throw never. in for myself. I've loved being here. Like, holy oh, cow, Matt. You're nice. What, what an honor. This has just been so great. Well, you're nice. Wow. And Six really... years. Oh, see, that's the energy I miss. Instead, I, I look at you and we just talk Marvel comics and I look at her and we talk life is good and positive and joy. Actually, Matt, I have a present for you. <laughs> what? Oh, no. Is it a clown balloon? It's based on uh, the show from a few days ago and we'll see if – you might have no idea what this is. Oh, a bag? It. Yeah. It's coming in a bag, you guys. Yeah. I will open it up. Oh, yes. <gasps> Yummy. Can you just eat these? I think Probably. you can. Actually, yes, I know Crispy you can. Crispy have... fried onions. Yeah. Because I had them on a salad. Because you the had other them day. on a salad the other day. M- most people buy them around oh, Thanksgiving and put so them on the string nice. bean casserole, but Matt wants to just eat them. Didn't you say they were pretty good on steak? They were on a steak salad. On a steak. And yeah, you can eat Crispy them. Crispy fried, I know fried I onions. I'm going to just, maybe I'll just eat those for breakfast. There you go. That seems inappropriate. They're crunchy like cereal. Oh, Becca, that's a, that is the greatest gift I've ever been given. <laughs> Thank so you glad. so much. Holy cow. I'm going to cry. It's a great day. Maybe it's the onions. Could be. It's the onions. It's a great day. Uh, okay. Let's get to the headlines. I guess we're still going to do that. Yeah. Sure. What's, uh, what, what do we need to be talking about? So AT&T reportedly went to President Donald Trump's personal attorney, Michael Cohen, just three days after Trump was sworn into office to get assistance on a number of issues, including a potential merger with, a, with uh, Time Warner. Because that was wow. up with the president, and he had some really? concerns. A lot of people feel it's attributed to uh, Time Warner own, owning CNN. What would Cohen know? What, how would he know what to do this with Time a, Warner? A, according to a report in the Washington Post, internal documents revealed that the money Cohen was paid a $600,000 sum. It was originally aye reported aye. to be 200000 Now it's up to six. Was predicted uh, or predicated on his advice on the proposed merger. The administration ultimately sided against AT&T, and the Department of Justice filed a suit to block the deal. Cohen was conducting a large number of deals with corporate clients at the time. We've heard about them the last few days, some pharmaceutical companies, and uh, Russian oligarch is connected to some of this. I'm not sure how, because it seems sort of like there's some there's a connection, but is it an actual connection? They're trying to look into that. But, um, yeah, the yeah. Other, and that would be the question. With AT&T involved, it's like, what does Michael Cohen know about the FCC policies and procedures that he would be able to step in and help with that? Yeah. I'm not sure. So what kind of access is he selling? Well, it's I mean, kind of concerning. Yeah, it's just, okay, I'll talk to the president for you. 
I guess, for 600 grand. House Speaker Paul Ryan on Thursday shut down attempts by members of his party to force a vote on bipartisan immigration legislation. Going down a path, having some spectacle on the floor that just results in a veto doesn't solve the problem, Ryan said. Uh, as reported by Politico. He explained that the White House will need to be a part of this and we need a bill the president will sign. It was a bipartisan attempt to vote on DACA legislation. Really? But Ryan, Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell in the Senate have both repeatedly stopped bills from even getting to the floor because they know that they'll have to get to the president's desk and he's going to say no. Yeah. So let's go with a deal that he'll say yes to instead of wasting our time. And that's how they've basically stopped anything has, from moving has through Has he Washington. said no to anything? Well, they just know, I mean, they just feel he will. I know, so but what's the point? So just put him out there. He's the kind of guy, too, that once there's pressure, yeah. he may just sign but it. That's how we govern now is you, you can think that the president's going to say no, so yeah. we're just not going to do anything. Yeah. And they just Come move on. forward. Come on. Facebook has assured Congress and members of the public that it's cracking down on terrorist activity on their platform, but at least a dozen U.S. designated terror groups maintain a presence on Facebook, according yeah. to an analysis by uh, Bloomberg, Bloomberg Business Week. While ISIS and Al Qaeda activity has been heavily targeted by face, Facebook groups like Hamas, Hezbollah, Boko Haram, and the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, or FARC. Uh, still have a presence on the site. Their pages include violent images and information about services they offer, sometimes linking to their home websites. There is no place for terrorists or content that promotes terrorism on Facebook, and we will and we remove it as soon as we become aware of it, the company told Bloomberg in a statement. We know we can do more, and we have been making major investments. They're hiring thousands of people to try to deal with this oh boy apparently they need to type in uh hezbollah and see what's there yeah the boko haram <laughs> these are common they're in the news finally it won't land him a spot in the olympics but a massachusetts college student has run one of the fastest miles while juggling huh an endeavor called joggling oh i once joggled zach prescott ran a four minute 43.2 second mile on tuesday while juggling three lacrosse balls this is the kind of sport I really respect. <laughs> Why? The junior business student who was on the Boston University track and cross-country squads told the Boston Globe, it's all about focus and rhythm. Once he gets used to the speed when he's running, you pretty much just juggle, you're juggling in place. Yeah, right. Because once you get used to the speed, he's like, okay, I'm at the speed, now I'm good, and he starts yeah. juggling. It's just, yeah, it's just getting used to the speed. If verified, his time would beat the previous world record by 0.6 seconds. Wow, point six joggling. Sheesh. Yeah, I once joggled. I was trying to carry too many plates, and I slipped, and I started jogging and falling at the same time. Joggling oh, wow. and oh. juggling and joggling oh. and foggling. Wow. Yeah, it was a good time. It sounds like it. Yeah, until every, until everything fell. Makes sense. Then it was just a mess. Well, and. You know, like you mentioned, I come from a clown family. Yeah. You know, I've, I, I, it's, I kind of bring shame upon my family name that I can't juggle. Oh, you can't? No. <gasps> the clown that couldn't Secrets juggle. Secrets out. I can't juggle. Isn't that one of the new shows on BYU television, The Clown That Couldn't Juggle? Oh, man. Yeah. I'm going to have to look that up. You know, you ought to try The Clown That Can Joggle. That rolls off the tongue. I oh. love that. Yeah. yeah. Can we get a poster of that for our wall? My little teaspoon still can't <laughs> juggle. Working on it. Okay, straight ahead, folks. We are going to be um, continuing our journey here to make life a little easier for all of y'all. How to reignite, how to uh, avoid job-related burnout. We all need it, for heaven's sakes. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, for businesses, burned out employees create additional workplace problems, which demand additional resources. Costs can be high. Dissatisfied workers lead to inferior products and services and just overall dissatisfaction in an organization. And so it is something we have to pay attention to. Latest research um, talks about the fact that 70 percent of employees may be uh, detached or like disengaged at work. And so we wanted to see if we could get some help on that issue. Joining us today is Dr. Clark Gaither. He's a board-certified family physician and um, is here today to talk to us about uh, about burnout and how basically we can we can work around and and find some hope, some peace, and uh, and 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 joy back in our lives and in our jo- our jobs. Uh, Clark, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate this opportunity to. To share what I know about burnout, and uh, thanks to BYU uh, Radio for having me on. You bet. And the name of your book is Reignite. It really, it seems like for some reason, you know, the fire gets burnt out. We we lose the fire uh, in ourselves. What's what do you sense is the biggest cause? What's the culprit of this thing? Well, uh, as you might imagine, uh, there's not just one cause. There's several that uh, kind of rise to the surface. Um, um, an investigator by the name of Christina Maslach kind of worked all this out back in the 80s, and her uh, studies uh, have held uh, true uh, even up, up up till now that there are really six major um, job employee mismatches uh, that cause burnout. Hmm. And uh, many of these will sound familiar uh, to the listeners. Uh, the first one is uh, work overload. The second one is lack of control. The third one is insufficient reward. The fourth one is breakdown of community. The fifth one is absence of fairness. And the last one is conflicting values. So anytime there's a negative impact on those domains where there's a big mismatch between the employee and the job they're being asked to do, that sets up a scenario where people can burn out. Mm. Boy, I mean, some people right there, they're like, holy cow, that's my life. That is my entire, I've got all six of those. But it's, yeah. it, it's, it, it does, it just slowly, it starts burning you at every angle. The candle starts to, to burn at every angle. What, um, what made you specifically become so interested in focusing on job-related burnout? Well, I got interested in burnout because I became burned out. I'm uh, a family physician, and I was in, uh, I think, my 17th year of practice. And I started out medicine uh, real gung-ho, excited, energetic. I was, you know, really enjoying the practice of medicine, and I enjoyed helping people. But over the years, um, uh, something began to happen that I really didn't understand. And by the 17th year I was in practice, I was just exhausted. I mean, it felt like my soul was tired. Uh, even the, even after a weekend off, I really didn't feel rested. And I began to dread uh, going into work. And I looked forward to Fridays, and, and uh, but really couldn't enjoy my weekend because by Saturday I was already dreading going back to work on Monday. And I knew this this just wasn't right because I, at one time, very much enjoyed the practice of medicine. And I felt myself being, uh, becoming negative, overly negative and detached, you know, from my patients. And I really just didn't feel like I was accomplishing anything. 
I went to my practice partner in 2009 and said, unless something changes, I'm going to have to leave the practice of medicine. I mean, that's how bad I felt. Mm. And he said, well, you know, do whatever you need to do. Just don't leave. We had a very busy, busy practice. And and I, quite frankly, wasn't ready to give up on medicine. Uh, I just felt so bad. I just knew something had to change. And I made some decisions that I thought would make me feel better. And I really didn't know what I was doing, but I thought I'll try some things to see if it makes me feel better. So I took, I took more time off and then net a cut and pay. But at that point I didn't care. I would have paid somebody to make myself feel better. So I paid myself by taking some extra days off. I, I began reading more outside of medicine. I began uh, exercising more. I picked up hobbies I'd lost interest in hmm. and really just started taking better care of myself, getting more rest. You know, all the things I was asking my patients to do, of course, right. uh, I actually started doing. And I was on about 10 different boards, uh, and I got off almost all of those except for the two I cared about. And within weeks, I felt uh, immensely better. Hmm. And so I began to search to figure out what what was wrong and you know, what was the problem, and uh, figured out that I was burned out after doing some reading. And I began to wonder if my colleagues were feeling the same or similar, and it didn't take but a five-minute Google search to figure out this was a big, huge problem, hmm. not only in the healthcare industry, but in other professions as well, and it's getting worse. Is so bur- I started reading everything I could on the subject. Is burnout different than stress? Um, I, I'm, yeah. a, I'm assuming stress is part of it, but... It's different, isn't it? It is very different. And traditionally, when uh, a work environment is, you know, when people sense that there's a problem in the work environment and uh, there's high turnover and the environment feels toxic, they say, well, everybody must be, you know, stressed. And so they bring in stress managers and yoga people and mindfulness trainers and meditation gurus and all of those things to treat stress when the underlying cause really may be burnout. And if you treat stress as if it were burnout, uh, you're not really correcting the underlying causes, and it and it, it won't get better. So if you're burned out, I can say with 100% assurance that you're stressed. But you can be stressed without being burned out. So I guess you'd still, have, you'd still be interested in your life. I mean, right, part of burnout yeah. is loss of interest, isn't it? Absolutely. It, it spills over not only from your professional life, but it will spill over into your profession. I mean, your um, personal life as well. Almost all aspects of it can be affected. So, you know, stress is kind of characterized by over-engagement. People get over-engaged when they're stressed. They get almost hyperactive. With burnout, there's disengagement. People detach or pull back. And with stress, the emotions are overactive. With burnout, the emotions are Uh, actually blunted and stress can produce uh, a sense of urgency or hyperactivity but burnout produces a sense of hopelessness and helplessness and those are two symptoms common with depression and that's why we see such high rates of depression in people who are burned out versus people who are stressed Mm. and with stress the damage is primarily physical but with burnout it's primarily emotional so when people burn out, they'll often act out in ways uh, in an attempt to make themselves feel better. And they do this various ways. Um, sometimes it's with um, a, a string of toxic 
relationships. Sometimes it's alcohol or uh, chemical dependency, um, and um, or other you know other self-destructive behaviors. But the worst way they act out, especially in my profession, is with suicide. Um, last year, over 400 physicians in the U.S. committed suicide, which mm. is much higher wow. than the general population. Yeah. So this almost sounds like I mean it could be that that midlife crisis too like when people start their life changes and I wonder how many things we've just called a midlife crisis that were really just somebody that's just burned out they're exhausted well it, it's worth considering and taking a look at I can tell you you know we all go through different seasons of our life and um and because we do our tastes will change our goals will change how we view things will change and and some people, when they discover that they're uh, burned out at work, uh, they'll just put their head down and grind away um, until retirement. And and they'll they get into what I call a burned out mindset, where they'll they'll say to themselves, "It's too late for me to change. I've got too much invested in this work. Uh, I don't have the right skill set to move on. I don't have the right resources. I won't make as much money doing something else. And so they they, they put all these roadblocks in front of themselves, but uh, none of that's true. And it it's, uh, really takes some self-reflection to, to realize that this life is, is way too short to live it burned out. In fact, you can never live a life of happiness or passion-driven purpose if you're burned out. So if you know any of those symptoms sound familiar, it's worth a moment to pause and reflect and say, you know, am I really just burned out at work? Uh, and if so, what do I need to do about it uh, to, to make myself better? Uh, again, we're talking with Clark Gaither, who is a medical doctor. He is a board-certified family physician and author of three books. Uh, and his latest book is Reignite. As he's as he's sharing with it with us today, we're we're learning about the impact of uh, burnout. Reignite, transform from burned out to on fire, and find new meaning in your career and your life. So, Clark, what what are the telltale signs that we're experiencing burnout in our life? There are three principal hallmarks or symptoms or signs of burnout. The first, and I hit all three of these, by the way. And mm. the first is. Uh, emotional exhaustion. That's where you come to feel that you can no longer give of yourself to the client, the customer, or the patient, or coworkers on an emotional or psychological level. You feel you're, you're just spent. You, you've left it all out there. I, and I hear people actually say this, I have nothing left to give. They feel like they have just drained all of the good that they can offer up out of their out of their life. Hmm. The second hallmark is depersonalization, and that's a fancy word for becoming. You become cynical or negative thinking about what you do, and you start detaching from the client, customer, or patient. You no longer feel a connection uh, with them, and therefore you kind of lose interest in helping them. And the third and last hallmark is a lack of a sense of personal accomplishment. And that's where you come to feel that you, you're no longer making a difference in the lives of, of your client, customer, or patient. And it, 
it doesn't necessarily mean that that's so. You know, I come, I came to feel like I wasn't making a difference in the lives of my patients. And, of course, that wasn't true, but it was the way I felt, and that's the way people feel. So those three hallmarks, wow. emotional exhaustion, keyword exhaustion, depersonalization, keyword cynicism, and a lack of a sense of personal accomplishment, and the keyword there is inefficacy. You feel inefficacious. Mm. Boy, it sounds like a lot of people, doesn't it, that just it, you see, you talk to them, and uh, what a lonely kind of empty space that is. What What do we do if we sense that we um, are feeling that um, th- that uh, burnout? What What do you suggest we do? What are the steps to moving out of it? The first is to determine what uh, what type of burnout you you have because there's two there's individual burnout and that's the person burns themselves out and then there's organizational burnout and that's burnout caused by the work environment i will tell you that only 10 percent just 10 percent of the time does the individual burn themselves out 90 hmm. percent of the time it's the work environment and it gets back to those six major mismatches that I told you about uh, a few moments ago. Yeah. Those must be eliminated in order to eliminate, mitigate, alleviate, or eliminate uh, burnout from the workplace. So most of the time when an individual burns themselves out, it's because of some behavior. Either their life's out of balance, they're not paying enough attention to the other realms in their life. All they do is work, and so they kind of ignore their emotional realm, their spiritual realm, their physical realm. And so workaholics can burn themselves out. Um, Yes, if someone gets involved with uh, chemical dependency or alcoholism or some other uh, distraction like that that's self-destructive, that that can burn people out. But that's only 10% of the time. The other 90% of the time, it's the work environment. And so changes have to be, structural changes have to be made in the work environment in order to eliminate it from the workspace. And if you can't get the attention of the employer to make the changes that are needed, then, you know, folks sometimes have a hard decision to make. Um, they, if you can't change your work environment and you can't change yourself to, to love what you're going through, then you have to start considering changing work environments, you know, uh, leaving that job and finding one that's more uh, conducive to your core values and, and, and what you want uh, and, and work. So I do not recommend people stay in a job where they're burned out if the work environment's not going to change because uh, you can get through it. Uh, some people can, like I said, they can put their head down and grind away, despising what they do until retirement, but they end up bitter and angry and resentful because they feel like life did not give them uh, what they wanted. Hmm. What would you recommend to the to a manager or a boss that's seeing their their people burning out or if if they're just seeing that organizationally it's the system itself is creating a lot of burnout? Well, I would get a, a consult. Uh, there's a, a natural kind of uh, workflow that uh, goes through a consultation for burnout where you actually survey the employees uh, to find the degree to which they're burned out, you use a mass-like burnout inventory uh, to determine that. Then there's another instrument called the Areas of Work-Life Survey um, that uh, identifies those six major mismatches and which ones are being negatively impacted. 
and then you do a debriefing for each of those, and you figure out some plan, put some plans into place or programs or policies that begin to decrease the impact of those mismatches and, and uh, enhance the ones that are that are positively impacted, so that you can reduce the risk of burnout in the work environment and increase what we call engagement, which is the exact opposite of burnout. Engagement is um, the hallmarks of engagement are vigor, dedication, and absorption, the exact opposite of those three hallmarks of burnout. So uh, it's all about, for the work environment, it's all about eliminating those mismatches. And if, if the employer is sufficiently large enough, I would recommend these days um, either a wellness coordinator or a wellness director uh, and give them a budget and give them a mandate and give them some authority because they will more than pay them for themselves by ridding workplace of, uh, of burnout. Uh, and the, the way they do that is by, you know, decreasing turnover, decreasing customer complaints or patient complaints, de- decreasing employee complaints, uh, producing a better product and service, and becoming more efficient. All those things, there's a definite return of investment on investing in burnout elimination, mitigation, and alleviation. Yeah. Man, Clark, this is such great stuff. And I, I appreciate it. I mean, I'm sad you went through it, but uh, in a way, I'm glad you went through it because we need we need people like you that can wrap your mind around something as important as this. Dr. Clark Gaither, again, is his name. And uh, when you think about it, you know, if you're feeling that burnout, if you're feeling that exhaustion, that tired, uh, you know, incapable of of keeping it up and being interested and energized anymore, then we've got to do something about it. And so go check out that book, Reignite, do something about it, get get to a healthier place. And if you're a manager and a leader, let's, let's see if we can't prevent that as well. It's not easy. I mean, people are driven in so many different ways. And a lot of times it's, you're just trying to stay ahead of the game. But that's why we bring you these ideas, these tools. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Up next, we'll do a little Coach's Corner, uh, talking more and more about resiliency. This is uh, our goal, is to help you be healthier and happier and to live a, a longer, happier life. Boy, you too stupid to do what your coach tells you. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball. Welcome back. Now, I've been talking about resiliency and the fact that we needed a metaphor. We needed a better metaphor to talk about how to help our kids be resilient. The metaphor I came up with is we're preparing them for a journey, right? We're preparing them for a life trek They're going to have to leave us eventually, get out there and get on the road and make life happen. And because we can't make sure everything is perfect for them, we have to give them the tools they need to make sure that they can handle it. And I talked about some levels of independence that we needed to reach with our children and and help them reach. One level was physical independence, where they can take care of themselves physically. They can pay for their own bills. They have financial independence to be able to, you know, eat and sleep and take care of everything they need to take care of. They have a healthy diet. They know how to exercise. They know hygiene. They, They can take care of themselves physically. They have to be socially independent so the relationships are strong. That they can, the people that they meet in the journey uh, are there, and they can know how to negotiate and mediate and 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 talk and actually hold a conversation with other people. They need to have intellectual um, 
interdependent or independence and know how to grow and learn and know how to take a difficult situation and figure it your way through it, which is why we sometimes need to allow our children to fail a little bit more. And hopefully uh, not fail just to fail, but fail so that they can learn to learn. And that's the one of the big goals we need. We also need to make sure we get them emotionally independent. Emotion um, is to understand the promptings they're getting, understand what their body's telling them, understand what they're thinking and feeling, that they're okay with emotion, that they know how to manage their emotion. And if their emotion's getting too high or amped up, they know how to calm it down and slow it down that they also know how to recognize the emotions of others and um, and have some compassion. We want them to be self-aware of their emotional states. We also want them to use their emotion as a motivator so that they can get up in the morning and, and go about their journey and go continue their trek um, forward because they understand what their emotions are telling them. And the last area we need to be independent in is um, our spiritual independence, right? We have to know that deep down inside of us, we are connected to a bigger purpose. We are connected to a more uh, impactful knowledge, a more impactful uh, purpose in this life. We also want to be connected into a higher power, a higher source that can give us more light, more information, more understanding. And uh, by having ourselves anchored independently in our spiritual compass, then we can use that as our GPS As we're out on our trek, we can use our spirituality to kind of know where we are in relation to where we want to be. It also becomes our map. It helps us understand what direction we need to go. So if you think about it, if we have these five areas, then we can make the trek work. And that really is what resiliency is for our children, that they have the spiritual connection so they know where they are in relation to where they want to be, that they have the emotional connection so that they actually have the energy and the excitement and they can read their promptings and their their motivations as they go through life, that they have the intellectual connection where they can get the skills they need, the tools they need along the journey. They have the social connection so they actually know how to be a friend and uh, follow a guide and get the help and have a, and have people around them that can support them on the journey and physically the physical connection to their body and which is going to be delivering all of these things. Five basic areas that we we would want to try to drive more and more resiliency through and uh, it's parenting 101 right not easy not easy but definitely definitely worth it and you know we're already doing it let's just start focusing and making sure we're doing it a little more intentionally we'll continue the journey folks up next we'll be talking about a zen approach to conflict resolution this is the matt townsend show Welcome back, friends. You know, if you've ever had to deal with conflict, and we all do, right, especially in our most important relationships, we want to do it in a way that we can find the peace and get to that peace. And a lot of times we wonder if it's possible. Well, a while ago, I interviewed um, a, a woman named Diane Hamilton, who's the author of Everything is Workable, a Zen Approach to Conflict Resolution. And she shared so many valuable insights with us about how to manage our emotions, how to manage our our upsets, and uh, we wanted to share a little bit of that with you today. I, uh, I, I continued an interview with her, and in the interview I asked, how do I turn off my fight or flight? Well, exactly. So you just nailed it. So 
everybody who's listening knows that we have this fight or flight system in our body and that when we hear a perspective that disagrees with ours, ours for some reason, our body, our old, the old part of our brain experiences it as a threat. And as soon as we start to feel that threat, we start to produce adrenaline cortisol, and all of a sudden we start getting bathed in these um, hormones that are really preparing us for fight or flight. Mm. So the question is, how do I stay and listen to somebody when my body is telling me I should get up and run, or my body should yeah. say, no, you need to stop? And so the, the trick is to realize that to listen to someone else doesn't mean you agree. So this is the first thing, because people think that if I, if I actually listen to what you have to say, you're going to think that I agree with you. Right. So you have to give yourself permission to listen and to let those sensations be in the body, but really learn how just to stay present and try to listen even though you feel that way. And basically over time, we talk about creating new neural pathways in the brain. So what happens is that as you learn to do that, the older part of who you are starts to learn how to calm down and be connected to what we call the prefrontal cortex, which is where your, your thoughts are and your rationality. And then pretty soon, there's actually a circuit between that fight or flight impulse and the part of you that's actually able to sit there and listen. And then it becomes, that's a habit. And that becomes a habit. Absolutely. So, so now I can, I can sit and do it. Isn't it amazing, though, that that fight or flight instinct was to make sure I wasn't, you know, eaten by a tiger. Right. And yet now it's, it's going off in me when my wife's like, can we talk? <laughs> run, run! The run, tiger's run. out. Yeah, yeah. Your hands, your palms start to uh-huh. sweat. Your heartbeat increases. Your your neck gets red. <laughs> you know, you feel your throat tighten. Yeah, it's amazing. It's like somebody just the you know like the wrong glance. Yeah, and it's just my wife. <laughs> yeah, no, it's wild. Relax, Matt. What? Yeah, take it easy. What I found too is um, if when I work with clients. Just pointing out the fact that you're starting – I call it being hijacked, that you're starting to be, be run by your fight-or-flight brain, yeah. Yeah. your amygdala. Um, just yeah. noticing the pattern might help you sit in it because – and then I also notice that if I can get them to be listening in order to then be able to show the person that I'm hearing them. Yep, exactly. That actually yeah. takes me out of my fight-or-flight brain and puts me into my higher brain. Yes, Just the right. act itself of me listening and knowing I'm going to have to show you I heard what you said. Yeah, I'm going to have to actually speak and use that part of my brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing is is that it's, it's, tr- it's an old tried-and-true method, but, but the, uh, the physiologists tell us this, that if you actually if you relax the breath and you create more rhythm in the breath and you make it smooth like you're sipping through a straw, literally your brain stops producing cortisol or the stress hormone almost immediately. Really? So as soon as you regulate the breath, boom, all of a sudden those hormones stop being dripped into your system. And once they're in there, my understanding is it takes almost 20 minutes for those to go out of your system. Right. In fact, I've even heard if they draw your blood, you could have elevated levels of adrenaline for 24 hours after an event. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So so physiology turns out to be a big, important part of communication skills is learning how to work with our physiology. Who to thunk it? I just Not me. I thought the whole problem was my wife. <laughs> well, there is that. Yeah, it's no, it's my husband. It's your husband. Oh, is it your husband? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we got to get him together. It's a real problem. That's right. It's a uh, it, but that's the, I guess that's the next problem, right? Is the minute I think the problem is outside of me, mm-hmm. that messes me up too. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Because the minute you think the problem's outside of you, you lose power to be able to solve the problem. Mm. 
What so do you, when you keep it in your own sphere, or at least part of it in your own sphere, you have more power. Yeah, you don't want to give up that power. Mm-mm. But we do that all the time by blaming the other and reacting to the other. Yeah, precisely. We give our power away by not, not seeing, okay, what is there that I can do? How can I participate in, in solving this problem? It seems like these conversations that are so conflicted, it's really more about in our, our own insecurities, our own fears. There's something else mm-hmm. going on deeper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lots of times we're, what happens is that we, we just very subtly stop believing that other people are for us, and we, very, we stop believing that we're for other people. And so then this separation sets in, and then pretty soon we're sort of in a survival mode where we're just going to kind of take care of ourselves and the world's against us. And it takes quite a lot of practice to, to get over that. I mean, maybe some people on the line had families where people really genuinely were for each other and there was a lot of cooperation, but others of us may come from families where there wasn't a lot of trust in each other and it's harder to develop that. So part of the reason we want to learn conflict resolution skills is they help us to learn how to trust each other more and how to relax that people really are on our side. It's because a lot of these are scripts, right? You taught us about how doing something over time would would create this this pattern in our brain, this Mm -hmm. script. But a lot of the scripts that people are dealing with when it comes to conflict have been created when they were five or ten. Yeah, yeah there, there are lots. Of, when you go deeper, particularly like you're saying in couples' relationships, what you find is that some of our beliefs are old defensive patterns that we had when we were young and that they worked for us. They helped us survive. They helped protect us. And now that we're older, they're what those very same beliefs are what are, what are keeping us from being able to make a real relationship with our partners and our spouses and our friends. The the habits, the thoughts we have keep us doing the same pattern mm-hmm. without ever evaluating it. So I'm sure part of mm-hmm. your mindfulness approach is making sure you're looking at what you're doing and why you're doing it. Yeah, precisely. And I think really asking yourself, is this familiar to me? Is this, some, is this experience one that I've had before? Have I had it often? Most of the time, when we start noticing that something's very familiar, then that lets us know there's something we can do to change it. Yeah, that's great. A pattern, but right? It's nice, to, it's nice to have coaching, you know, yeah. someone like you. Yeah, it's helpful. But we could just have some other set of eyes on it. Yeah, exactly. And someone you trust and you can relax with, because relaxation is a big part of it. When we're tense, we tend to go down the wrong road. Mm. What do you do when you're – because the group dynamic, a dyad's one thing, right? So mm-hmm. two people arguing, mm-hmm. that's one thing. But the minute you get into a group or it's a couple and their parents, mm-hmm. then what do, you, what do you do there to kind of create – or do you just try to keep it to the players? Well, I, you know, it's interesting. I think one of the reasons family dynamics, particularly when we get older, it's, it's different when we're younger because the parents have authority. But, but when we become grown and we mm. get together with our siblings and our parents are there or we've lost a parent, suddenly the, there's no leadership. And so what's happening is that people are kind of just trading off, you know, there's a lot of coping going on and even, even where there's a lot of goodwill. So, I, I mean, I, for me, I just try to keep my own center. And when I'm in my own center, then I find that I'm kinder to other people. And then I can sort of, you know, be a positive influence in the space or a positive influence in the dynamic. And and that can be really satisfying even when it doesn't totally succeed. I guess you just suggest there's no harm to getting really good at meditation. Because if if you were really good at meditation, mediation might come natural. Um, Do you think? 
You know, yeah. Well, I think listening and meditating are very similar. So what's similar about listening and meditation? When you sit down and you quiet your mind, you're basically turning off your, your talking voice inside. When you, when you listen, you're turning off your talking voice and you're tuning into someone else. When you're meditating, you're turning down that incessant kind of monkey mind and you're just learning how to be quiet. And then as you sink in a little more, we talked about, you know, noticing our breathing and as we notice our breathing then all of a sudden the adrenaline start stops running and we feel more relaxed and then pretty soon you know instead of thinking about the past and future we're right here in the moment we're not judging things we're not judging the other person who's speaking our our partner our friend we're listening to what they have to say and so meditation and listening both involve quieting down turning that voice down and becoming present in the here and now and what we find with people who do meditate, and it's you know it's getting quite popular these days, is that when you turn off your talking voice and you turn up what we call the experiencing network in the brain, that the other thing that shoots up is our well-being indicators. So it turns out that quietude actually helps people feel better. Hmm. Very important. Yeah. Well, and it it gives you an inner sense of peace. Mm-hmm. That, Absolutely. That you can then project outward. Yeah, that's right. It's like you create a little oasis for yourself um, where, you know, at any time during the day, whether you're in your car or whether you're in the tub or whether you're, you know, sitting in a traffic stop, you actually know how to relax your mind. And it really is a practice. It's like going to the gym. You learn how to train your mind to, to kind of turn off so that you're not just constantly on yourself thinking about what you have to do or what you haven't done or are you okay or how am I going to get better. That voice just becomes quiet. That uh, was Diane Hamilton, author of Everything is Workable, a Zen Approach to Conflict Resolution. And uh, that is the show, my friends. Uh, Up next, of course, Screen Cleaning will be coming on with Jeff Liam Simpson. You're not going to want to miss that. Uh, And that's it for me. But again, just a sabbatical. And in about about a month or so, we're going to start a one-hour show. Again, the Matt Townsend Show will continue. It's been a joy, a pleasure being with you. Thanks so much for your time. Stick with BYU Broadcasting. So much uh, good to help you see the good in the world as well. And uh, stay with us right now because Screen Cleaning is up next. Good morning. Welcome to Screen Cleaning. Just like every other episode of Screen Cleaning, we do our darndest to give you the very best in entertainment news and really the best in entertainment experiences. And today is no exception. We have a huge show for you today. Not only do we have a ton to talk about, Cole, I I have a lot of things I need your opinion on, but we're also we're going to we're going to give some films a second chance. Everybody deserves a second chance, right? Uh, well, some some people do a horrible job of making a first impression in job interviews, on dates, and movies can make a bad first impression on us as moviegoers, too. Very so true. Some of these films deserve another look, right? Some of them might. I others guess, might not. I guess and we that will is find out. to be determined, right? But uh, let's let's find out what's in the news that we really want to highlight today. There are two films that are getting a third film in their series. Woo! And I am excited about both of them, actually. Oh, yeah. Uh, the first one 
is one that, man, it's taken a long time for them to get to a third one of this. It's Sherlock Holmes with Robert Downey Jr., Jude Law, directed by Guy Ritchie. He's a director I actually really enjoy. I enjoy his style of kind of jumping around and only giving you little pieces of the, the very clever in the editing, right? Yes. And he made two films that did pretty well. Yeah, their box office was great. It seemed like they just had a cash cow on their hands and then they right. stopped. And it had the perfect ending to the second one. You thought, oh, they're definitely going to have another one. And then, yeah, years and years and years have gone by. No third movie, but there is one coming out soon. So I'm super excited about that. The other one. Years and years and years and years and years. Has waited even longer. By. Like we're talking 30 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, And by the time it comes out, it could be 35, 40 years. Who knows? (laughs) But we're, of course, talking about Bill and Ted Part 3, which I am excited about for a number of reasons. First of all, I think Keanu Reeves was born to play Ted Theodore Logan. I think that role was written specifically for him. I think that he plays that role pretty much in every movie that he's been in since. So Just kind of the vacant expression on his face. Right, right. Yeah. And you don't necessarily have to be a good actor to be in this role. And I'm not saying he's a bad actor. Aren't you? I'm just leaving it at <laughs> that first statement that I just left you with. Uh, how do you feel about that, Cole? Oh, I, I mean, I love everything Keanu Reeves has done in the meantime, and so it'll be interesting to see him go take all these action movie things that he's done and then kind of put them aside and go back to being Ted. Yeah, it could go either way because they have the original writers, the original director, the original the original cast. I assume there may be others that will come back. George Carlin obviously won't. Um, so, yeah, but 30 years later, can this original cast of players, can they come out with something that's – Relevant and just as funny as the original ones were? Probably not. Or should they have gone the route of let's get somebody who's just a huge fan of the originals and let's just completely rehaul it? Because the premise of the movie sounds pretty similar to the other movies. Well, the premise of the second one was very similar to the premise of the first one also. Right. I'm I'm going to have something to say whenever we get into our other segments about revisiting a franchise after many, many years. Yes. Many, many times it does not work. And so this might be fun, but I can see it very much going in the Dumb and Dumber 2 category. Ooh. I always tell people bad. the funniest thing about that movie, Dumb and Dumber 2, was the title. Dumb and Dumber 2 spelled T-O-O. Yeah. Or two. T-O, yeah. Um, (laughs) Gosh, that makes me laugh right there. Uh, Okay, which of those films is your favorite of the first or the second? Excellent Adventure or Bogus Journey? Ooh, uh, the first one, but barely. Yeah. They're both very good. I love Bogus Journey, mainly just because it's so weird and different, but also because of William Sadler, who plays Death in the movie. It's just great in that film. Anyway, it could go either way, but another interesting part that I left out is that Steven Soderbergh is the executive producer of Bill and Ted's 3. <laughs> anyway. Their third journey. Yeah. Or adventure. Or something. Okay. Uh, Cole, I know we always talk about how we're giving the best in entertainment news. I'm going to give you probably the worst news of the entertainment week and really the worst 
news of my week. And that is that one of the two sitcoms that I watch has just been canceled after four seasons of hilarity. It's a little show called The Last Man on Earth, which aired on Fox. And it was not, you know, the greatest show ever. There were a lot of misses in addition to the hits. But some of the some of the best moments on the show brought me to tears. And they were some of the best moments I've ever seen on TV. And unfortunately, they ended season four on a cliffhanger, and we'll never know how it ended. Have you ever watched this show, Cole? I've seen an episode. Not enough to cry sentimental tears over it, but one of the two or three sitcoms that I regularly watch also got the axe by the big fox. <gasps> After Brooklyn five Nine-Nine? seasons, Brooklyn Nine-Nine wow. is also going the way of Last Man on Earth. That's others. a shame. I will say this. I never, ever thought The Last Man on Earth would last more than one season because I thought, here's a premise that's a great premise, not necessarily an original premise, <laughs> but how on earth could it go beyond one season and they found a way the unfortunate thing for me though is the best season finales were seasons one and three had they ended it after either one of those seasons it would have been fantastic but season four the way they ended it it really i remember ending season three laughing hysterically because it was it was a shocking ending that made you laugh out loud then it ends and i remember thinking and telling my wife Okay, if they end the show here, I'm more than happy because that was a fantastic ending. This one, not so much. They might have known that they were getting close to the chopping block and tried to to curry some favor with the fans to yeah. leave it on that cliffhanger just so they could get back. Sure. But it didn't work. I have a question for you. As mm-hmm. many of these shows that us and others love are being cut by various networks, it's the cut in season for the television – do you want to see these revived on Netflix or on Hulu? Because th- that's where things go to. As soon as something is asked that people like, then the petitions start rising and Netflix starts tweeting and we start seeing potential of could it come back here, could it come back there? I'm okay. I think I'm okay that this one in particular is gone. Um, the problem was season three, um, like I said, had a strong ending – but the season as a whole was not that great. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, I'll be okay if this if this gets the axe. But then season four got better, but then they, they ended it the way they did. Um, I, I am okay with these shows being revived. I think it sends a message that, you know what? People are still interested in this show. And if you can find a more economical way to bring it back – Let's say by going onto a streaming channel or a different network, by all means, why not? I just don't think it's worth my energy as a fan to want this. It's okay to let things go because I've never seen it work. Community is one of my favorite television shows of all time. Okay. It was canceled after five seasons and brought back to Yahoo Screen as one of the three shows right. that they ever had on that for a couple days. Yeah. And it was terrible. Okay. I am a big fan of Arrested Development. It <gasps> got cut after three seasons. It came back to Netflix, and for a fourth, it wasn't that good. You I'm a big fan of— You didn't like it? Season four of Arrested Development? No. Wow. 
Have you watched the recut version yet? Not yet. Okay. And we did talk about that. But I just don't think any any revival effort has ever managed to recapture the glory and the charm hmm. that the show had originally. Once it's been canceled, it really does go downhill from there. There's no bringing back that charm. Okay. At least it hasn't happened yet. I'm going to think hope. of I'm going to think of a good example at some point and I'll get back to you on. All right. I, were you a Roseanne fan? That's been a big uh success. So it was brought back to actual networks, which goes a little bit further and into helping its credibility. Okay. But I don't think the revival does what the 90s version did. Hmm. It's a little more sticky, it's a little more out of place. I'm going to think of an example. Okay, but we're not talking it has to be better than the original, right? It just, it just has, has to, to meet, kind it. Of meet it. just has it. to okay. get me interested All right. again. All right. Fuller well, House was brought to Netflix. It's not that good. This is kind of an interesting segue because the last thing I want to talk to you about is Peter Jackson's been in the news lately because he has a couple of choices on his plate. He can enter the DC universe – which could be exciting because you'd have a multiple Academy Award-winning director directing the uh, not-so-successful DC uh Along with universe. all the other Academy Award-winning directors that the DC universe seems to be getting and then not making movies. Okay. About. So he could do that. Uh-huh. I don't know what film it would be that he would direct. Or Amazon Prime is – or Amazon Studios is is making – a TV version of The Lord of the Rings. Right. Now, this brings up the same question that you just asked a few minutes ago. Do you go back and revisit it? Because it didn't seem to work so well when he re- revisited Middle Earth for the Hobbit movies, mm-hmm. right? Disappointing. Yes. So, would you be interested in seeing his TV take? Would they be able to afford it, first of all? Because he makes these huge films. I wonder what Peter Jackson would look like on a smaller scale. I would like to see the DC version because I don't want to have to see a watered-down version of Peter Jackson's TV, Lord of the Rings. I want to see someone else take over. I want to see a different vision because I've seen what happens. Like you said, when he goes back and tries to recapture the magic, it doesn't work. Yeah. I'm with you on this one in particular because not only does the DC films, not only do they need better directors, but yeah, just just try something new. You got to move on, right? DC could use the help. Go yes. ahead. Anyway, speaking of moving on, when we return, we've been talking a lot already about second chances, getting another chance, another crack at another season of television. Cole and I decided to give a few films a second chance, and we're going to see whether or not they deserve that second chance when we return here on Screen Cleaning. Cole, I think you're the best around. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, There's a very specific reason why we're playing that song from a little film that we're going to be discussing here. But uh, we are going to do something we've never done here on the show called Second Chance Cinema. We mentioned earlier in the show that everybody deserves a second chance, right? Maybe some television shows might get second chances on streaming services. Or Peter Jackson wanting a second chance at Middle Earth. And I should mention, this should be taken into account. Sometimes when we watch films, we're just not 
in the right mood. Right. Yeah. Sometimes we're super tired. Sometimes we're upset because we lost our job or sometimes we have set unrealistic expectations for what the movie is going to be. Have right. you ever have you ever uh, opened up the fridge and started drinking out of a glass and you thought it was going to be one thing and it turned out to be something else? Like you thought you were exactly. drinking apple juice, but it was orange juice. And even though you love orange juice, you didn't think that's what you were going to get. And yeah. so it just tastes repulsive to you in that that's, moment. That's like one of my top three fears. Um, <laughs> Um, but yes, I, so this brings up a good example. I, I always go back to food. All roads lead back to food with me. As they should. But you build up in your mind what you want to be. You're, you know, For the whole day, you're thinking, oh, I can't wait to get home. We're going to have some pizza. That's all I want. That's all I can think about is pizza. You get home and you don't have the ingredients for pizza. So you have to <gasps> settle on something else. So you're already disappointed going into it. So sometimes our viewing experiences are are messed up by our circumstances, right? So we thought maybe maybe it's possible that maybe we're, we weren't in the right mood or we didn't give these films the chances that they deserved. Maybe there's something to them that we didn't see the first time around, right? Right. Uh, one thing I want to mention – or a few things I want to mention about these films we're going to be discussing. All of these films were financial successes and all but one of them garnered positive reviews, OK? But dis- and that's subjective as well. Well – But mainly yeah. – If you're okay. going by like Rotten Tomatoes and the percentage of critics who gave it a, a positive review, then they got positive reviews. Mm. Despite all that – there are still some films that Cole and I dislike um, that we just – we can't understand why they were so popular. Mm-hmm. We can't understand why so many people loved them, but they did. And so here's what we did. I gave Cole three films that he uh, notoriously does not like. And I gave Jeff three films from genres or that he's mentioned before that he doesn't seem to like either. Right. And we're going to see if these films warrant another viewing. So the first film, and we just gave you a hint of it when we came into the break here or came in from the break. Uh, It's a critically acclaimed film. Roger Ebert called the film one of the year's best. He gave it four out of four stars. Hey, oh. And described it as an exciting, sweet-tempered, heartwarming story with one of the most interesting friendships in a long time. And I'm with him. And it has an 88% on Rotten Tomatoes. It got an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor. It was a financial success, and it spawned not only four sequels, but a TV series. We're talking, of course, about The Karate Kid. Now, this is the same director that directed Rocky, as well as... Rocky Five, which is I should, probably shouldn't mention in the same sentence, the seventh best Rocky. John film. G. Avildsen, who has done some some interesting films, but it's hard not to watch his films and think, "Gosh, it seems like you're just trying to duplicate the success that you had with Rocky." I would rather just go watch Rocky. <laughs> so many of these films. Speaking of 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 second chances and trying to duplicate success, seems like John G. Avildsen just kept trying to get back to his Rocky roots and what made him so successful in the beginning because you feel like you're watching Rocky when you watch The Karate Kid. A lot of the dialogue is delivered in a way that's very organic, which is not a bad thing. And in fact, Ralph Macchio is quite good in the film. Um, What I remembered about this film 
Well, one thing I will say is the scenes with Pat Morita or Noriyuki, Pat, quotation mark, uh, Morita, they were even better than I remembered. Any scene involving Pat Morita, it just makes the movie that much better. On the flip side of that, any scene that he's not in are just really difficult to get through. This is a film that seems incredibly dated. Not only just the dialogue and the hairstyles and the music that they listen to, it just seems dated. And when you watch a film like Rocky, which was made back in the 70s, you don't get that feeling of, oh, this film is so dated because the script is so tight, the acting is so good, and it's just a good, uplifting champion of a story, right? I don't get that feeling watching The Karate Kid. It feels dated. I don't know if you knew this, by the way. Pat Morita, in addition to getting that Academy Award nomination, did you know he started as a stand-up comic? (laughs) I did not. Which is fitting because he has some really – all the funny lines in the movie are given to Pat Morita. There's a scene where he's pretending that he can't speak English so that Elizabeth Shue's character can be allowed on the the fighting floor. Yeah, yeah. And she's pretending to be his translator. And the, he uh, she compliments the guy, or he compliments him through Elizabeth Shue. And uh, the guy says, oh, thank you. And Pat Morita says, welcome. And then he turns around and leaves. That, was, that made me laugh out loud. Um, the dialogue in this movie is just horrible. Any of the scenes with the high school kids, it's just like, oh, it's, it's such a groaner. I I had to do a double take to make sure I was hearing these lines uh, correctly the first time. But one of the guys in Johnny's gangs is, must be take a worm for a walk week. (laughs) Which I envisioned in my mind after Ralph Macchio walks off to that insult, all of his friends turn to him and, Say, did you just say it must be take a worm? No, nah, they all give him a high five, like sick burn, man. <laughs> and then I love uh, when during the fight where uh, you hear that you're listening to the audience responses to all these fighters, and somebody shouts out just just loud enough for you to notice, Johnny, you're a cream puff. So lines like that, I would watch this film again. I will say that, but probably just to make. That's so sad. Which is it's, – it's so unfortunate because you feel like you're watching two different movies. You're watching a movie – all the scenes with Pat Morita, it's like these are like Academy Award uh, caliber scenes and acting. And yet they're just – then you have the juxtaposition with the scenes that are not of that quality. So um, – and then I think the biggest – the glaring errors or the glaring thing that I cannot forgive about this movie is the or the drastic – Character shifts that are just drop of the hat. I hate you, Ralph Macchio. Oh, you deserve this. You're the best. These characters do these complete flip-flops toward the end of the film that make absolutely no sense and are completely inconsistent. But anyway, I am excited. I will say I'm very intrigued to check out Cobra Kai, which is the TV series that we mentioned earlier Mm -hmm. and that got huge, huge ratings and uh, it's already been greenlit for a second season. So there's something good coming out of the Karate Kid universe. Anyway. But again, they've handed it over to some new people who might have a different spin on it. It's going to be more of a comedy. So I'm I'm intrigued. Okay. But anyway, that's one where some aspects were better than I remembered and some aspects were worse than I remembered. So was it worth a second chance? I think so. If nothing – if for no other reason – than to be brushed up enough to enjoy the TV series. 
Okay. I even thought, why don't I watch part two and part three? But again, that for those reasons, for mainly for, gosh, wouldn't it be funny to watch part two and part three? There is such a thing as watching something to enjoy laughing at it. And I think I let myself go enough that I did enjoy when I gave Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull a second chance. Really? Because I let myself laugh at it. Okay. Openly okay. because it was a joke. You just you just deflated the balloon of happiness I had and oh. The other good thing that came out of this is that I allowed myself to go back and rewatch a couple of the older Indiana Joneses because I didn't want to just criticize things and sound hypocritical. Okay. The thing there were there was a lot ridiculous about King, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, but there's an amount of ridiculosity in that universe anyway. Is that um, a word? It is now. Thank you. And so I wanted to make sure what I was arguing made sense. Okay. And the main thing that I argue from this comes from the interaction, again, with your two main characters. Indiana Jones is trying, with their fourth one, was trying to bring in almost a new indie. You present Harrison Ford's son as a recently Transformer-enthused Shia LaBeouf. Yes. And you give him most of the weird stuff to do in the movie and you know your final scene is indiana jones and mary and finally getting married and shia picks up the hat when it blows off the hat stand and puts and almost puts it on and then harrison ford grabs it from him and walks out the door into the sunset when you saw that scene in the movie theater did everybody in your audience let out a groan as well like when he picks up the hat because i remember that people were just like oh no not don't hand it over to him And if that's the reaction you get when you are setting this up as a very serious, you know, establish your predecessor kind of movie and everyone, even people like you that think they like the movie, admit that that was terrible, then you know you're coming from a wrong direction. Interesting. Okay. But more so than Harrison Ford in his old age trying to still pull off stunts that didn't look um, realistic in the first place are the – the graphics in this. So story-wise, I have no complaints. I am fine with aliens kind of coming around. If you've established the Holy Grail as a thing and you've established all these other things. And you're fine with nuking the fridge? I am. <laughs> so I'm fine with the concept. I'm not fine with the way they pulled it off. There is too much just over-the-top and unnecessary CGI within this movie. So if you got rid of a lot of that CGI, do you think you would have enjoyed it a lot more? Slightly, yes. Okay. I'm going to get to talk about a movie that has ama- – I'm going to get to talk about two more movies that have very great realistic effects that okay. they used within their movies. And this I wanna, one's I wanna highlight worst the words, part. I want to highlight the words you used to describe those films coming up. Great. Great realistic special <laughs> effects. Great and realistic. Okay, we're mm-hmm. going gonna to focus on those. You know, it's interesting, though, because the film you just mentioned got three and a half out of four stars from Roger Ebert, 77 percent on Rotten Tomatoes, and it made over three quarters of a billion dollars worldwide. And it has a 6.2 on IMDb when everyone got a chance to go around and give it a second chance. They realized, nope, it's not really that good. But it was fun, at least. It gives you an adventure. It keeps things moving. And it pumps you with nostalgia, right? A little bit. Okay. It it was kind of sad to see how old Harrison Ford had gotten because he really – 
it was a struggle watching all the ways they edited around him trying to do things. There's a scene where he's on the back of Shia LaBeouf's bicycle, er, motorbike and he kind of fights through a car full of KGB and then he fights out the other window on the other side back onto the bike. And Harrison Ford just looks like an old man <laughs> trying to wrangle around. And... Well, if you didn't like how old he was in that film, you may not like it. And that was back in 2008. Yeah. He's doing another one in 2020. Yeah. So it could be rough. Anyway... Um, We've got a couple more films before we go to the break. Mine is one I remember not liking, being pretty disappointed with, even though it got an 84% on Rotten Tomatoes, positive reviews. It was nominated for Best Animated Feature at the Academy Awards. It made over $100 million, and it has a great premise. Uh, And I'm talking about Corpse Bride, Tim Burton's Corpse Bride, by the way. Uh, We've entered the Tim Burton segment of our program today. Yes, these are two films directed by Tim Burton. It has a great premise. You have this really shy guy that isn't going to be in this arranged marriage. And just as it looks like this couple who's never met or talked to each other is about to hit it off, uh, things go sour and he runs off and is practicing his wedding vows in the woods. And it just so happens that he puts his ring in the practice on a twig, which turns out to be a skeleton, and he, unbeknownst to him, uh, marries a corpse. So great premise. It was interesting. I was watching. I was like, this sounds. This seems like something that you would see in an opera, yeah. which is, is fitting because it is a musical with songs uh, written by Danny Elfman, like so many other Tim Burton movies. Danny Elfman wrote the score for my next one, too. Great premise. I loved the first 15 minutes and I, as I was watching it, I was like, this is going to be even better than I remembered it because I didn't really care for it the first time. But they blew it. They fumbled this great premise. It's beautiful to look at. It has a fantastic voice cast in it, including Albert Finney, who's Daddy Warbucks from Annie. But the script is bad. And there are it's sprinkled with terrible puns throughout the film that are just groan-inducing Again, strong start, followed by about an hour of just a meandering mess. There's nothing for them to do, and it's it seems longer than its hour and fifteen minute running time. Oof, that's yeah. bad. So this is one I it didn't doesn't deserve the second chance for me. My Tim Burton movie that I was the most excited for out of the three to think really? maybe this one is the one that I was wrong <laughs> about the first time is Tim Burton's 2001 remake of The Planet of the Apes. I like that they – they there's Planet of the Apes was based on a book. And in that book, they actually do go to a different planet, right? As opposed to the big twist at the end of the 1968 version is that he you're, was – Don't, don't – you're going to – I guess it's been long enough. You can tell us. 1968, <laughs> he was on Earth the whole time. No. In this one, they Mark Wahlberg really does go to a different planet. And all the time travel stuff really does make sense. The ending is not as bad as you think it is because really? it also tracks within the time travel of the universe as well. Because that seemed like a moment when everybody in the movie theater was just laughing. It – if you look at the way time – I'm not going to – that's too much. But it does work. I'm not angry with that. Okay. And the special effects and the visual effects, Tim Burton, while this is kind of his slow period that we've dipped into, um, he's was still making beautiful movies at least. And he got together a pretty decent cast to hide underneath all the monkey makeup in this. Sure. Tim Roth, Michael Clark Duncan, Helena Bonham Carter, Paul Giamatti, et cetera. They're all doing amazing stuff and get really emotional, and you can see the emotion in their faces underneath a ton of makeup, and it looks great. 
and then the monkeys start jumping off of trampolines all over the place. And then you see Mark Wahlberg's reaction. So, again, great realistic special effects, right? They're done practically. And yet Mark Wahlberg still looks like he's standing in front of a green screen staring at nothing every time he tries to (laughs) act because he doesn't – he actually has people to interact with. The new Planet of the Apes movies are just – or a guy with a bunch of dots on his face to get motion capture, and they can manage to act and interact well. Mark Wahlberg was actually looking at people that look like actual monkeys, and he didn't manage to muster up any bit of acting within himself wow. to react to it. Wow. So I, I want to share some statistics on this film. Go ahead. It was a financial success, made three hundred about $362 million. However, when asked whether he'd return for a sequel— Tim Burton Which they respond. wanted him to do. The right. whole setup of the end was to get us back into the universe of the Planet of the Apes. Here's how Tim Burton responded. I'd rather jump out a window. And it makes sense. It just... So this is not a film that you feel deserves a second chance? It turns out no. Oh, the, no. The concept does track all the way through, and I'm fine with the changes. If you're going to reboot a classic like the way they did, you have to make enough changes that it's useful. But... They got to the last fight scene. It seemed like the movie was ending. They were getting out into – in the first movie, when they go out into the unknown, it's almost over and you feel like, OK, it's coming to a head. And I checked where I was at and it was exactly halfway through and they were already out into the unknown. Whoa. And that last half of the movie was just the longest hour of movie <laughs> that I've seen until – I went and rewatched another one that we'll get to talk about. Interesting. So at least go back and watch the first half of Planet of the Apes is what I'm hearing. Uh, I mean, it keeps things moving a little better. And watch the first 15 minutes of Corpse Bride, I guess. When we return, we are going to share the biggest movies on our list that I am super excited to find out whether Cole thinks it warrants a second viewing. We're all about second chances here on Screen Cleaning, and we're going to do that when we come back. now come to the two films on our list that are the biggest, most epic films, and also, at least one of them is kind of polarizing here on Screen Cleaning, and we're going to get to that in a second. You just heard a hint of what that film is going to be. We've already talked about The Karate Kid, which I felt like there were certain parts of that that warranted a second chance, other parts that really didn't. And that you liked laughing at. And then I rewatched Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which I similarly think there are good parts. But overall, you couldn't laugh at it. Either one of those films would be fine to have on in the background at a party, right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, And then we talked about Corpse Bride and Planet of the Apes. Two Tim Burton movies that look beautiful and have good starts and premises that sort of falter down the stretch. Real quick, what's the last great Tim Burton movie you saw? (laughs) (laughs) So I wasn't alive in the 80s. um, Oh, wow. I just watched Pee-wee's Big Adventure over over last weekend. And that is – gosh, that is such a funny movie. A lot of people would say that's his best film. It was also his first film. Anyway, um, interesting. I would say the last one for me is probably Big Fish. I really enjoyed Big Fish. And it was kind of a different film for him. Right. So – The film that Cole assigned for me to watch again 
is a film that and and I want to say none of these three films are films that I hate, but they're just not really films that I want to revisit or and this one is definitely the best of the three. That's but, good to uh, hear. I I have always been so shocked at why people count this as one of the best Marvel movies that have ever been made. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand the hype. I remember watching it the first time and thinking, I, I just I kind of like the first one better. Um, I'm talking about Captain America: The Winter Soldier. Mm-hmm. Now I think you're going to like what I have to say, Cole. All right. I was surprised by its tone, first of all, and I would venture to say that this is the dark night of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. What I mean by that is the tone of this film is is very different from the other more lighthearted, funny tones of the other Marvel movies, and I will say I, I uh, was trying to do some editing while I was watching this film. So there was a little bit of a disadvantage going into this, right, because I wasn't all the way there. But anytime there were some action scenes, which were most of the movie, Mm -hmm. there were a couple of action scenes in this movie that were probably the best of any of the Marvel movies that I've seen. The one in particular that I'm talking about is a scene where Samuel L. Jackson is – they're trying to apprehend him and it's – Gripping. I remember thinking this is probably one of the best action scenes I've seen in a Marvel movie. Um, So for the action scenes alone, I think this definitely warrants a second viewing, which seems silly to say because if you're a fan of the Marvel movies, you've either seen this again or you love it. Uh, I I do think – I still feel like there are other films that I enjoy more. I wouldn't say this is the most enjoyable Marvel film. I think those titles would go to films like Iron Man and Guardians of the Galaxy. I really enjoyed Ant-Man. But this is a really action-packed quality film. And it's I could see what they were trying to do. And, and in a lot of ways, it really does seem like the dark night of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And another thing I should mention is Captain America is not my favorite of the heroes in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. To me, he gets a little preachy and is kind of a goody two-shoes. I'm I'm more a fan of the Tony Starks that are a little more snarky and vulnerable and flawed just because I think that's more realistic. Because But that's why The Winter Soldier is such an important movie within this extended universe. So when you're bringing all of these characters together, I think Captain America... Uh, so this is Iron Man's MCU. He started it, and he has been mm-hmm. kind of the driving force. Yeah. He's the one closest to the Infinity Stones, and he gets a lot of great moments. But the biggest character arc throughout the movies are Captain America's. He starts off in the 1940s as just a man that he wants so much, and his, his desire and his spirit exceed what his body can handle. And then he gets the super soldier serum and he exceeds and he is the face of the war and he does great things. And then he makes a self-sacrificing move at the end and he's frozen in time and he's woken up here in the modern day. Yes. And then he realizes that the world he's woken up in is a different one than he fell asleep in. And he has to be complicated and he has to make decisions that he wouldn't have normally made that lead to his decision in civil war 
which is which fractures the Avengers totally, and he leads the part that's against the government, not for the government. A man that was created by the government and had so much so much American spirit, and his name is Captain America, decides to go against that within Civil War, and then by the time we get to Infinity War, he's no mad. I haven't seen it. He's, I mean, just his character is no mad. <laughs> he doesn't have his shield. He's kind of working as a as a subversive character towards the other Avengers. Okay. Um, his character arc is the strongest through those movies. And to do that with a character that in the comics, you're right, for a lot of it is just the goody two-shoes is a great achievement. It's a good point. But I think a lot of those same points could be said about Tony Stark, how he kind of flip-flops on where he stands on some issues. But anyway, Cole, I want to make time for this last pick because I think everything has led up to this moment on screen cleaning. Mm. This is a show that you've been very outspoken against from the very beginning. And I want to give you a chance to uh, to tell us what you like about this film, if there's something that you like about it. And that's the song that we came in with, and it is... The Dark Knight Rises. So a theme that all three of the movies that I got to watch again and revisit this week are that I love their universe. I love other movies within them a lot. Okay. And I feel like they started with a strong premise and then just either didn't look good or didn't sound good, had weak dialogue, had weak acting, that's the other ones here, or got boring. And even <laughs> after a rewatch of The Dark Knight Rises, this is, I think I've seen it in a plasma center, like bits and pieces, and I've seen clips and I know the quotes, but this is the second time I've really sat down and watched it total. And halfway through, I got bored and was making a sandwich and just it, I didn't need to pay attention. I knew what was going to happen. It leads to and, and it, this kind of like relies on the ending a lot of the big twist that that the chick from Inception was a bad guy the whole time or whatever. It relies on that twist a lot. And because I knew that, I never got invested in her when Batman's like has a little romantic tiff with her and when they're building up the fact that, oh, it was Bane that was in the hole. And I'm thinking, no, I know that that's not true. So why are you telling me this movie? And it just got so boring in the middle because I knew where it was going to get to. And there wasn't any action or character conflict that made me keep watching. Did you hate it as much as you say you've hated it? Yeah. Really, And again, it's because you had this high point. The Dark Knight is one of my favorite movies of all time. And to follow that up with such a disappointing, boring, slogging, self-important venture that The Dark Knight Rises becomes, personally, it is disappointing and still as bad, if not worse, than the first time I watched it. Wow. Wow. So you're saying this film that made over a billion dollars and has an 87% on Rotten Tomatoes... Mm -hmm. Does not deserve a second viewing. Not for me. Okay. If you're just joining us, I want to share some quotes from Cole uh, that he used to describe the films that he talked about today. Cole said that Planet of the Apes, the 2001 Tim Burton film, was great. He (laughs) said that – and he described The Dark Knight Rises as moving in that it moved him to the kitchen. To make These, a sandwich. This is right? how people get taken out of context 101. Don't you love reviews that are like that mm-hmm. where it's like, this is the best Adam Sandler movie that I've seen. I remember it was one, but it's still got a negative review, you know? But, uh, yeah, 
Overall, one last thing. So we each watched mm-hmm. three movies mm-hmm. that we had initial negative impressions of and then maybe changed or maybe didn't. Would you have rather watched my three or your three? I would have rather have watched your three. And I would have rather watched your three. Okay. By far. Well, let's go home this weekend and we can watch those other three. <laughs> anyway, uh, we've given these films a second chance and maybe you should too. Cole's kind of a curmudgeon and, and uh, he's somebody that is not going to be as forgiving. But uh, anyway, he did. It. at least he gave it a second chance. Gave it the old college try. Thank you, Cole. We appreciate you. Only for you, Jeff. And you are the best, as it said in the song. Around. And speaking of another couple of gentlemen that are the best around, we're going to be speaking with our good friends at BYU Sports Nation when we return. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. This is Jeff Simpson. I'm joined here uh, by Cole Wissinger or with Cole Wissinger. And we are going over to BYU Sports Nation to get a taste of what's coming up on their show. We've been talking about second chances today, gentlemen. And, Jerem Jordan, I'm, I'm grateful you're giving our softball team a second chance this year. Well, we didn't give Jeremy Jordan a second chance because we booted oh. him off the show. Yeah, he's oh. not on the show today. It's Spencer and, and Jason. Jason. I thought yep. it was Jeremy and Jason. No, Excuse no, me. Nope. Okay, there well, are you... no second chances here. Oh, wow. You're like Cole. <laughs> You're just like Cole. We talked about a few films that we wanted to give a second chance to. Actually, I gave three films to Cole that he does not like, and he gave me three films I don't like, and we gave him another viewing. And, uh, yeah, Cole does not want to give any of those films another chance. Is this, based, yeah. uh, is this based off of Brooklyn Nine-Nine being canceled and now maybe being revived? Is it really? Because the the groundswell of like anger uh, is is uh, maybe bringing it back in in another form, maybe like on Hulu or something. But, that uh, might have a part of it, and I'm holding out hope that that might happen with the Last Man on Earth too, which also got the axe. Oh, see, I never th- I I f- forced myself through like two seasons of that, and I'm like, wait a minute, that stays on the air, but they're going to cancel Brooklyn Nine Nine. Come on, <laughs> I could see why you'd say that. All right, so all right, so. <laughs> I don't know, movies that we want to give a second chance to. You think about that, Jason, and I'm going to go with, uh, in the spirit of second chances, the fact that the NBA coach of the year, Dwayne Casey, Mm. got fired. What? He's the coach of the year. What? As voted by his peer coaches, (laughs) and he got fired by (laughs) Toronto. Wow. Or, excuse me, he got fired by Lebronto. (laughs) oh that is criminal that doesn't make any sense at all i understand that they got swept in the second round and they were the top seed in the east but it's lebron james it's more about lebron james than it is about Dwayne casey does this work the same way where there can be such an outcry that he could get his job back or i guess in in sports you just get a better job or a different job well, I, I don't know that there can be an outcry to put him back in his seat. I think once management makes that decision, you got to go with it. Like, you mm. need to stick with it. You can't pull a Michael Scott and, like, waver and go back and forth <laughs> and force an office mutiny. So he's out. I don't know why, but he's out. And my question is, who are they going to get? If you had the coach of the year as voted by your peers, Ugh. who are you going to go get that's going to be better? That, that wants to go to Toronto. What coach wants to go to Toronto 
to follow up a guy who just won coach of the year and got fired. Like, do you feel good about your job security in that situation? Yeah, I don't want to go back to Toronto. I've been there once. Never been there. I'm also not sure I'm allowed to leave the country. <laughs> I take that back. I'm not sure I'm allowed to go to other countries. They may not want me there. No, Jason, the problem for you is you can leave the country. We just won't let you yeah, enter. That's the, that's the yes. point. I'm like, I don't want to tempt fate. I don't want to leave and then like, hey, you left. We don't want you back. Second chances are great, aren't they, Jeff? <laughs> yes. Anyway, um, okay, so, so you're going to be talking about that on your program. Anything else you're going to be talking about? Well, actually, we're not going to be talking about the coach. I just wanted <gasps> to get that out. Well, thank you. I just, that's just, yeah. This just is venting the show, because it makes no sense. I, a, need, I need to vent. We're going to talk all about our softball game last night. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> all right. Oh. I, I hey, compiled a list. Jeff, Jeff was our cleanup hitter last night. Of course night. he was, because he's a good player. He was our screen cleanup hitter. I, that made me laugh when you said that. And, it, <laughs> you know, I was a little shocked. I mean, you just as surprised as you were that they booted this coach, when I heard I was cleanup, I was like, Me? <laughs> Take care of business, Jeff. I did you're the, walk. You're the most dangerous kind of cleanup hitter, the one that doesn't think you should be. I walked. That was the my contribution last hitter. night. <laughs> okay, so what else is coming up on the show? Uh, nothing modest about today's show, that's for sure. We are uh, flamboyant. We are out there. <laughs> we are going to be loud. Uh, some people might call it obnoxious. We are going straight to the numbers. I have compiled a list of BYU quarterbacks over the last 30 years and their records in starts against Power 5 teams. Hmm. Two of the 12 have produced a winning record, Jeff. Really? Two. Two. And I promise you, one of them is way off your radar. Okay. Way off your Intrigued. radar. Intrigued. Okay. So there's that. Also, a guy who apparently still has much dislike for the University of Utah. His name is Max Hall. <gasps> He's going to join us today. Are you serious? Uh-huh. That's awesome. How about this, too? What is your completely biased take on BYU that no matter what anybody tells you, you will always believe is true? We want your blue goggles on for but this, Completely Jeff. as many pairs of blue goggles as you can wear. No matter what people say, you will always believe that this is true about BYU. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I don't think you want my honest answer on that one. Okay. <laughs> Leave it off the airwaves yeah. then. <laughs> Okay. There you go, man. That is a loaded That's show. The show. We also have the head golf coach, Bruce Brockbank. And I told you, when, when we have Max Hall on, one of the great quarterbacks of all time at BYU, NFL quarterback for that matter, he always brings strong opinions. Who would he start today? Like if he had to pick a quarterback and he watched spring practice, who would he start today? Well, you heard it from Spencer and Jason. Theirs is a show that you definitely want to give a second chance to. If you've only heard it once... Keep listening. How's that? I like it. Okay. Let's go. <laughs> Second have, chances. Have a good show, you guys. Ah, well, Cole, we've talked a lot about second chances on the show today, and that's going to be the highlight of our Panning for Good segment today. There's good in them dire hills. You know, one aspect of Second Chances that we didn't really hit that hard today was the time that passes between viewings of these films, and that plays a big part of it. You could you could wait 20 years, and all of a sudden you may like this movie, or the opposite could be true, especially films that were very nostalgic about. They're just not the same when you go back, right? Well, uh, 
I recently saw a movie for the second time that – so there obviously wasn't that much time that elapsed uh, between viewings because I saw, that, saw it twice in the theaters. And it's a film that I enjoyed the first time despite many flaws, but I liked it even more the second time around. And I want to highlight it because it's a PG-13 film that didn't make as much money as it probably should have and as probably as much as the filmmakers hoped it would. But I'm talking about Ready Player One. It is just a fun, nostalgic uh, movie that requires a second viewing because they throw so much at you, so many pop culture references that you can't possibly get all of them in the first viewing, especially in the movie theater where you don't have the luxury of the pause button, right? So go back, watch it again the second time. I enjoyed it even more the second time around. And you may enjoy some of these other films the second time around. It doesn't have to be these films that we mentioned, but we all deserve a second chance, right? And that includes the movies and TV shows that we watch. Yes. Cole, thank you for uh, going, putting yourself through this pain to for the sake of the show. It wasn't as bad as I thought, Jeff. They were good, good movies. I see what other people get at them. It's just some of them I'm personally tied too much to the other movies to have given them the second chance that maybe they deserved. Well, thank you very much, Cole. I appreciate you. And as I said earlier on the show, you are the best around. around. Nothing's ever going to keep you down. Coming up next, two more gentlemen who nothing ever is going to keep them down. That's BYU Sports Nation coming up next. 